It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, episode 29. Make that three hard-boiled eggs. This is Noah Diamond, director of the New York Opera Company, and I am here, as always, with my cohort of co-hosts, back after 28 episodes, as well as numerous podcasts. First, let's have a nice big hand for the greatest tenor in the world, Bob Gasell. Hello. For some reason, I am hankering for a manicure. I'll lay odds you can't get in here. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, please welcome those five kids up in Canada, Matthew Conium. And the curtain will be up again next season. (laughs) And our special guest is a gifted photographer, designer, writer, and musician whose novel Royalties, available now, is inspired by showbiz legends on both sides of his family. And he recently appeared to great acclaim in Home Again, the Marx Brothers and New York City. We all kind of feel like the Marx Brothers are family, but for him, they really are family. Son of Arthur, grandson of Groucho, great-grandson of the worst tailor in Yorkville, Mr. Andy Marx. Welcome. Well, thank you. And let's not forget Al Sheen is in there somewhere, right? That's uh, true. Is he a great-great-great-uncle, I guess? Great, great, great uncle, I believe. Mm-hmm. As great as an uncle could be. He, he, sir, I, I, he's so great that I think that he's called a grand uncle, I think. I think that's what they, people always go, do you call him a great uncle or a grand uncle? I don't know. But he has so many greats because he's so distant that I, I have to throw in a grand and two greats. <laughs> a grand and two greats. Absolutely, Mr. Sheen. And let's throw in general grant. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be one of these mornings. But uh, thank you for having me here. I'm, I'm really, really thrilled. Thank you for being here. We are delighted to have you on the show. And this is a special one for numerous reasons. Not only do we have Andy with us today, but we're going to be talking about A Night at the Opera, the greatest film the Marx Brothers ever made in 1935. Was it the beginning of the end? Was it the end of the beginning? The middle of the middle? There is a lot to say about this film, and we're going to say all of it too many times. But first, uh, let's catch up with our guest a little bit. Andy, we usually start these things by asking our guests how they first got interested in the Marx Brothers. Uh, well, I don't know. That's, uh, I guess one day somebody, some, somebody in my family, uh, you know, dropped it that, uh, oh, by the way, did you know your grandfather was in some great movies? And I actually, though, do, may, may I tell a story about Please. my, my first you're here. remembrance? And it's so funny that we're doing the Night at the Opera one. So I grew up in Pacific Palisades and we had a house and I, you know, I remember this. And, and we used to play baseball in the front yard and it was a summer and my brother and I were out there playing. And I remember my, my dad coming out and he said, hey, kids, come in. You know, and I was probably... Well, I don't I mean, I must have been seven or eight or something. My brother was probably 11. And uh, so he said, hey, kids, come in. And uh, so we went in and he said, hey, I want to show you because we'd never I don't think none of us had ever seen. I mean, my brother and I had not. And because uh, the stuff wasn't widely available. And they said, hey, we, we want to show you. Here's here's Grandpa Groucho and his brothers. And they're in this movie and it's called A Night at the Opera and it's on TV right now. So we went into the den and we sat down and we watched it. And I can still, I mean, I, to this day, I can remember seeing, you know, I remember seeing the stateroom scene, like sitting on the floor in my den and watching this. And, uh, you know, I don't know. And then it just, you know, you have to remember that when I was, you know, until, until the seventies. So when I was, when I was young, you know, very young as a teenager or younger, 
you know, yeah, you know, Groucho was in kind of the semi-retirement thing. You know, by the mm -hmm. early '60s, he was basically semi-retired, and so yeah, I'd seen some of the TV stuff, but you know, there wasn't the giant adulation, and it was a different world then. There wasn't, you know, every idiot. You know, now you can be famous, you know, for doing nothing, and so it was. It was just weird that I mean, Groucho was just kind of this retired guy, and and most people knew him from the game show. So I mean, it was. You know, and the movies had kind of, you know, were kind of in the back there because, you know, time had passed, especially since since the great ones. I mean, it had been, you know, 30 years. I mean, Groucho was sort of the equivalent. And I don't mean this in any way as a put down, but he was basically because most people knew him as a game show host. He was, you know, he was the equivalent of like Bob Barker walking, you know, when he walked around in Beverly Hills hmm. Or, you know, and that's what, oh, there's Groucho from You Bet Your Life. And isn't he funny hmm. and blah, blah. But again, there was not this thing and then in the 70s when the whole thing started with you bet your life which i kind of helped uh, bring back and uh you know when that started and he got his oscar then it was a completely you know different crazy thing but i remember <clears throat> by high school so that this would have been mid you know late 60s by high school i was super aware of the marx brothers there were theaters that showed them and i you know i had to have a girlfriend and we'd go there was a theater on fairfax uh, avenue in la and it was like the you know where it was like they showed old movies so i would go and then i remember there was a and you guys probably all have it the 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 record album that had all the bits from the marx brothers movies that that gary owens narrated yeah, so absolutely. i had that album and there was a wc fields one too i remember but right I'm not even sure I bought that. I think I just got the Marx Brothers one. Hope I'm not offending any WC mm -hmm. people, but anyway, so I learned all the bits and I knew I knew them all, you know, backwards and forwards. I could do them all, and I used to do them in high school and this, you know, and the, and then so I got very interested in that and and so whenever there was a movie, so by that point and that would be, you know, 68, well by 69 I was already I had left for college. And again, that's when the whole thing kind of gelled because there was the all the student stuff going on. You know, we all loved anarchy. The Marx Brothers kind of symbolized anarchy. So now it kind of there was a snowball thing. And I went to UC Santa Barbara and I was actually there the year they burned down the Bank of America. Although I was to quote Woody Allen, I was nowhere near Santa Barbara. <laughs> although, although he said I, I was nowhere near Oakland. Oakland. <laughs> Remember from. Uh, Played against Played Sam. Played against Sam. Anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> so there was this, there was this, I don't know, how did we get on Woody? Anyway, there's this whole, you know, snowball thing. And in Isla Vista, which was the little town next to Santa Barbara, there was an old, you know, revival theater. And I remember one week they had the, um, you know, they had a Marx Brothers festival. So, you know, every night I took a different girl and I said, hey, you want to go see my relatives? And we would go. And uh, after my freshman year, you know, they do a yearbook, you know, a college yearbook. But because the school's so big, they don't do individual photos, only of the seniors. And so they do like the wings of the dormitory. So I actually dressed up as Groucho for the picture and nobody noticed. They took the picture and it was published in the yearbook. So there's, so if you find the UCSB yearbook from 6970, you you will find a photo of me dressed as Groucho among all the other students. Ah, uh, one of our intrepid listeners is going to have to get on that. <laughs> yeah, there's a site I think I've seen a like a yearbook site, and they have you know uh, proving how wonderful once again the internet is that it's, you can find any yearbook you know from like anything. So yeah, somebody will. I hope somebody finds that. Actually, what I'd love to have somebody find. I, I wish, and I've tried, and I can. I wish you know I was on my brother and I uh, when. 
you know, we were, you know, he was probably 16 and I was 12 and Steve Allen had a local show in LA and my brother and I had a folk singing act and we called ourselves the brothers marks and we did songs and we wrote some, I played ukulele and I think he either played guitar or banjo, you know, cause it was kind of like folk stuff was, was kind of cool, man. And we, and, and Groucho took us on the Steve Allen show and we performed on the Steve Allen show and I have this one picture of me, and it's 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 Harry Ruby, Groucho, me, and my brother, and Steve Allen. For, for some wow. reason, Groucho also took Harry Ruby on the show with us, which was kind of cool. So, hey, I want to ask you about something I just thought about. Yes, sir. In 1965, while the Beatles were uh, in Los Angeles, they came to a garden party, a charity function, and were meeting a lot of celebrities. And Groucho came uh, with Melinda. And uh, I was wondering if you were there or knew anything about this. No, I've, as, as a matter of fact, uh, that's the first I've ever heard it. Although coincidentally, I'm listening to a, a book now and it's, it's a great book. And I, I, I don't remember the exact title, but I think it's called like 150 stories about the Beatles. And it's kind of it's like 150 chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each one is like, well, I'm doing the audio, but I, mm-hmm. you know, each one is like a little five minute like right. kind of great little thing about it. But they talk, one of the things they talk about is that when the Beatles came to Hollywood, they kind of had this thing where everybody like wanted to meet them. So, so that doesn't, that doesn't surprise me. The same thing happened with Groucho and Elton John, you know, and Elton John came and, you know, he had his big triumph at the Troubadour. I believe that was maybe 1970 where he was kind of nobody. Well, you, if you saw the movie, but mm-hmm. you, you know that his, his big breakthrough was he played at the Troubadour and Robert Hilburn wrote this review in the LA times that basically kind of launched him. And so there was the same thing where there you'd read stories about Elton John and it'd say, you know, last Sunday he was at, you know, he was at a party and he met, and he met Groucho, mm-hmm. you know, and he, cause it's like one of his idols. And as a matter of fact, uh, just to do a little name dropping here, I was actually one, I once had lunch at Elton John's house in Nice, and in Nice is a Carnegie Hall poster autographed to Elton John. Groucho wrote to John Elton from Marx Groucho. <laughs> the music world seems to have as many uh, obsessive Marx Brothers fans running through it as the comedy world. Oh, I know. I mean, you have Queen. You have. Uh, I guess they are they on Sgt. Pepper's. Are they on the cover They're of Sergeant Pepper? They really should be there. But I thought aren't. I thought Groucho. Nobody, none of them. Okay, I guess I'm no. wrong. I know. I guess like Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Hardier, and maybe Fields. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, they should have been. I don't know why. I also wonder why Apple never did a, a think different, you know, thing with Groucho. Oh I yeah, should have done that. But hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, certainly their place in the firmament is uh, yeah sure. Any, anyway, I do. I do. Know, to answer your question, I I had never heard that, but that's actually really cool. That I wish I had gone along on that. That's that's really cool. You know, there is a brief film clip of Groucho being interviewed outside the party. And You're kidding. He does not seem thrilled to be there. What do you want? Well, well what are you going to do in there, Groucho? Are you going in to listen to being on anything get drunk? You wouldn't dare. Are you really? Of course I am. Brought the charming family with you? Whenever I can get a free drink, I'll go anywhere. You bet your life. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very funny answer. Wow. You know, one of the one of the things that speaking of the Beatles that I always remember, because I, I always say this about and, you know, we all kind of know this, but, you know, Groucho was so brilliant. And uh, I mean, just, you know, he read so much and he just he was just so amazingly smart. And so I remember being being I was I had been at college and uh, I guess it was it was I don't know this must. Well, I don't know. Anyway, it was the year that the that George Harrison's 
uh, All Things Must Pass album came out. So I believe that would have been, is that, it would have either been, like I think it was 70, I believe, like the fall, I believe it was the fall of 70. And I remember going to Groucho's for dinner and he had a little, like he had, well, it was this, it was the combination sort of projection room. And then he had a sort of bar in there. It, it kind mm-hmm. of converted into one of the walls had a projector. So it became a projection room. And I remember we got, we came to dinner. It was like me, my dad and, and my stepmother. And I don't know, remember who else was there, but I remember Groucho going into a whole long thing about, I guess he, you know, cause he, he read like every publication and he, and he goes, you know, I've been reading a lot about this new George Harrison album. He goes, and you know, <laughs> it, re- it really turns out that George Harrison was kind of the unsung genius of the group. Cause everybody now was saying this because he, it was this three record album mm-hmm. and it was incredible. And he, and he was kind of waxing on about how, how great George, and it was just, wow. it, and again, at that point, I mean, he was in his eighties. So it was just, he was just so on top of everything. I just, I, it was like, he could go on a thing and discuss Probably he could have gone on a sh- on something and, and talked about all things must pass. I you know he, you know for all I know he may have even listened to it, but I just thought that was cool the way that he he always was on top of everything. You know he used to, he used to do a thing. I remember I used to when I was up at the house a lot when I was working on the you bet your life thing. I I would always I would I would find him. It would be well it was once a week he would get a copy of the New Yorker. And then he would clip out the, like his favorite cartoons and he, and he kept him, you know, like in a, in an envelope or something. I mean, can you imagine Groucho Marx? He's going through the New Yorker clipping out his favorite, you know, cartoons. A lot New of Yorker. these things, it's, it's sometimes hard to imagine Groucho Marx doing them, but it's so easy to imagine a grandfather doing those things. And yeah. I, that's one of the reasons your stories are so heartwarming. Uh, you're, you were, of course, his his grandson and and a member of the Marx family, but you were also his friend, and it really comes across um, every time you're mentioned in a book about the Marx brothers. It's very clear that there was a real relationship between you and Groucho. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I that's I mean that's really nice to hear. That's nice. He was he was grandfatherly, and uh, but yeah, we had. I mean, especially the the two years that I was up there you know, doing the, you bet your life thing. I mean, what didn't, I mean, uh, you know, it was like, and Steve Stolyer was up there, you know, doing the fan mail stuff, but I mean, what a, what a thing, uh, you know, to, to basically be, you know, and hanging, you know, every day I would go there and, and catalog and archive the, the, all the, you bet your life stuff. And, and I don't know, he would do his stuff and then we would eat lunch together and then he'd say, Hey, run a couple, let's watch him. And then you'd sit there watching him and he, He'd go, yeah, I remember her. She was an idiot. And go, wow, that, that one really made me laugh. Or this one. He goes, what? He goes, wait, watch. This is really fun. And he, again, he remembered like every, every episode. And, you know, he would just say that. So what a thing. And then I, you know, and then I would, you know, I'd end up staying, you know, for dinner. I mean, I literally was at that house for almost two years straight. Comes across very strongly in Charlotte Chandler's book, I think, doesn't it? There's a lot of references uh, to, to you in there with Groucho being very, uh, speaking very warmly about you. No, that's, that's yeah. I remember that I, my quote in the, uh, she asked me who my idols were. And I remember saying Elton John and Woody Allen, which I thought were actually pretty good idols back then. You know, I kind of, you know, I was into music and I was into comedy. So those were kind of my two faves. And I've met them both, fortunately, which is kind of a thrill. And I wonder if as a way of transitioning into our discussion of A Night at the Opera, Andy, you, you told me a story about watching A Night at the Opera in the presence of yes. Groucho and and Groucho wasn't the only noteworthy person in the room. Right. At the, time. The, the other one was uh, Jack Nicholson. And, and you have to remember this was, 
you guys are more film buffs than I am probably. But uh, so that would have been 1974. He was not like this big star yet, whenever it was. I mean, he had done Last Detail. Everybody thought he was cool and, and awesome, but he had not sort of done the big breakthrough movies yet. And he was just, you know, he's like a normal guy. And 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 the girlfriend that I that I had at the time was from New Jersey, and I believe he's from New Jersey. And so they were going on and, you know, let's, you know, so we had, we all had dinner together. Like, so here I am, you know, we're having dinner with Groucho and Jack Nicholson and, and, and then Groucho says, Hey, I want to watch a night at the opera. And then Jack says, yeah, great. So we go in there and, you know, we're all, the four of us are sitting there watching a night at the opera. So that's my other memorable uh, viewing of a night at the opera. Did Groucho laugh out loud when he saw Yeah, himself? he did. He, he, uh, you know, he, he really reveled, you know, in, in one of the things I wrote, uh, in one of the articles, I think it's called Growing Up with Groucho, it was that it was a thing in the L.A. Times. L.A. Times. Yeah. Right. And it was to, to commemorate what would have been his 100th birthday. And I wrote I, I tell a story in there about as I, and as I told you guys, I had memorized all the bits. And I believe uh, my father and his writing partner, Bob Fisher, Robert Fisher, were le- were also I was leaving for college and they were leaving to go off for Minnie's Boys in New York. So somebody you know threw him a going away party and I was there. And, uh, so I, w- I was there and Groucho was there. And of course, I don't know, I hadn't seen him in a, in a while. So I wanted to show off and do all the great comedy bits for him that I knew. And of course he stopped me after like one of them and he, he was, he was kind of angry and he goes, I don't, I don't want to hear this because I'm not into the past. You know, that only makes you get old. I don't want to hear the old bits from my movie. So the ironic thing is though, so this is 69 by 73, you know, and four with the Oscar and everything, you know, then he was reveling in talking about the past and he loved it. So he kind of at that point, you know, I, I guess it finally got to him. So he he enjoyed it. But he did he did give me kind of a, you know, a yelling at uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. in his in his grouchy, stern way. He said, I don't don't do that. I don't want to hear that. I, I find that uh, personally vindicating to hear, because uh, whenever I do any kind of Marx Brothers project, including any time I play Groucho on stage, People who mean very well, they're, they're being sweet when they say it, but they all say, oh, Groucho would have been so proud of you. And I always think, I, I don't think he would have been. <laughs> I don't actually think he would have approved of this stuff at all. I think he would have, may, at best, maybe tolerated. Uh, no, but, but see, I'm not sure. I might disagree with you on that, because as I say, as he, as he mellowed and got older, I think he, I think he reveled and, like, and liked that kind of stuff. It, it, and especially if you're good. That, then I that I think he would go for it. Well, that is good to hear, and it is true yeah. that he was he was very kind to Louis J. Stadlin during uh, right, Bones. right, yeah. right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, really. And and yet it is the Groucho figure. It's his disapproval that seems almost as as worth wanting as his approval. <laughs> um, the way people talk about being insulted by him, oh yeah, uh, being this honor that people would travel for. Mm-hmm. I know. Yes, that is, that's that's true. Well, I guess uh, we should get into the movie, though it is certainly true that we could fill many episodes with the Andy Marks story. And well, I can maybe, always come back. Maybe we should do that. But, yeah, uh, we'll do a part two. But duty calls. Or we can do the Joe Rogan thing and do like, you know, three hours of this. Uh, do know, a marathon, not? yeah. I'm not doing any Joe Rogan things, I'll tell you. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I know, right? Yeah. We'll call it the Groucho Marx experience. You know what I, you know what I always wonder, and we, and we don't have to get, I mean, we don't have to get into a whole political thing, but before, what, what do you, I mean, I guess it would depend on what, at what age, but what do you think Groucho would have made of Donald Trump? 
We're going to ask you that. We should be asking you that. I don't, I mean, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I, mean I would have to think that he probably would not like him. I mean, and I would say that at all ages, I would say even because he was not, you know, it's funny, my father, as he got older, got, you know, and many, many people, as they get older, they get more conservative. And so my father went from really kind of a raging liberal to, I mean, you know, in the later years of his life, he he actually had a photo of, of, uh, of Bush in his office. And I don't think it was even, I don't even know if it was signed. It was just like a framed photo. And I, I, I believe I'm, and I'm talking about, um, uh, you know, the junior or, you know, H whatever, you know, the yeah. younger one, not the, and, and, you know, so, w. so my dad got, got very conservative and, and kind of Republican and, uh, you know, you know, I mean, and he, well, I, well, actually come to think of it, even way back during the Vietnam war, I mean, at, at some, at some point, uh, he, he actually thought the Vietnam war was a good thing. And he actually, and I also remember, cause I used to get into fights with my dad. He was, he was pro Nixon and didn't believe that Nixon did anything. It's kind of like this, you know, what's going on now. And my dad would say, my dad would say, well, other people did stuff, but he didn't know about it. Like, that's what he would say. So actually, so my dad turned pretty quickly, but mm-hmm. Groucho never did. And so I, I've got to, I, I've got to think that he would think it was in, like, it was insane. I, I think. I, I don't it's know. hard to imagine Groucho approving of uh, right. Trump's politics. Um, and, and as well as his style and personality, I think there's something in the Trump era, too, that um, showbiz people, no matter what their opinions of Trump are politically, they recognize him as in many ways more of a showbiz figure than a yeah. a political figure in the right. traditional sense. And a lot of the um, sort of American tradition of hucksterism that is a big part of what the Marx brothers were satirizing and working with right. a lot. That's true. Yeah. It, it comes up a lot in, in Trump's Trump as a public figure. Yeah. I think he might've recognized him as a rich source of material. That's for sure. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, um, he would have, I think he would have liked to have, uh, to have been on stage next to him in, uh, in animal crackers or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think politically though, Groucho was, was an old mix, wasn't he? I mean, he was, he was kind of a fiscal liberal and a, and a kind of a, an economic liberal, but he, he also did have some, so, some very socially conservative views and he wasn't well, like what, like what he, he wasn't, I, I mean, I'm not, he wasn't like, too what? keen on, on the march of time. You know, he, he, he liked, he, he liked things to stay the same, and he was. Yeah, well, who does? And he was I mean, very, uh, very. I, I agree with that. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, he he particularly uh, uh, just before the big seventies uh, revival kicked in, he was starting to get uh, quite sort of. I mean, there is there is one interview where he does say uh, he, he surprised himself, but he but he is supporting Nixon because it's better than a blitz. He did. Yeah, and then and then completely, you know, this was like at the eleventh hour before uh, the big youth cult began, and then he. And then he reversed again, but I, you know, I think he didn't like student unrest. He didn't like, um, you know. Yeah, you know what? That that's probably true. He didn't like yeah, drugs, I mean, I, of course. Yeah. He was very anti-drugs, wasn't he? And uh, right, I, th- I right. think he just thought that that you know, modern life was was going too fast. <laughs> he was yeah. born in eighteen ninety. I mean, he, exactly. He yeah. Was. Well, I mean, but but again, who doesn't think that? Yeah. You know? I mean, don't we all think modern life oh. is you know, but. But uh, but then at one point, didn't he say? Wasn't he quoted in some magazine where he where he said like like Hoover or somebody should be assassinated or uh, Nixon? Oh yeah. no no or, or, or Nixon yeah. right? Yeah. And then he went on the enemies. Yeah. Okay. So funny. I was talking to John Tefteller about that just the other day actually, and he said um, <laughs> what what you never what you don't hear about that story is that Aaron. 
um, was absolutely furious. And she said, that's a, you know, that's a, you've, you've done a stupid thing. You have to backtrack on that. And apparently Erin was, was quite conservative, which I was surprised to hear, but that's what John Teptiller said. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah. I didn't, I did not, uh, yeah, I know. Can you imagine like, can you imagine if this whole thing was going on during, you know, if there had been social media back then, you know, when, I mean, that would be nuts. Can you imagine Gratcher on Twitter? I mean, for God's sake. No, I know. <laughs> Steve Stoll, Steve Stoll, you probably would have been doing the Twitter, you know, would have been doing the tweet. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Anyway, all right. You know, it's funny. I heard. Have you? Have you? Have you guys? Well, let's. We don't. We can go on. That's. We, we don't need to belabor uh, Steve Stoller. That's fine. <laughs> no, no. I like. I like. No, no. I like Steve. But you know, at one point they were they were supposedly going to do that movie out of you know uh, what's you know yeah. uh, Rob Zombie was going to do that movie. Yeah. Yes. But it's funny because uh, and it, and it's funny that Steve never. If you read Steve's book, he doesn't give this impression. But I heard Rob Zombie on. He was on Joe Rogan and he was talking about the movie and how the, the whole movie kind of fell apart and everything. But he's telling the story and he says, oh, well, you know, Steve Stoller was in charge of the entire household uh, and he was in charge of everything that went on with Groucho, which, which is complete nonsense because it wasn't. I was actually in charge and I and legally I was appointed as conservative. So I don't know where like Rob Zombie you know, got that info from. But I don't think he but I don't think Steve ever, ever actually said that in his book. So I'm not sure. I don't no, know. He, did, so, he didn't. Maybe the screenplay uh, went in another direction. Did you ever see that? That, that was the guy that, that's the same guy that wrote the Beach Boys movie, uh, right. I believe. And uh, oh, I don't man. know, maybe, or maybe Rob just, you know, thought he heard that or something. But uh, anyway, I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed to get in a Twitter war with Rob Zombie and, and correct him. So maybe, <laughs> maybe your listeners will, will hear this and go, yeah, Andy was really in charge. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, take, I, I, did, I did take care of him up to the end. So. You know, I mean, as best as I could. So, and so did a lot of other, obviously, doctors and, and people like that. So, there was a very young doctor, uh, a guy named Richard Gold, who I don't know. He was, you know, he was like an intern, so he he probably was like thirty, and he was he was the doctor that, he, or he was doing his internship for the the main doctor who Groucho had been going to for years, a guy, and he was kind of like at retirement age, so he had like a young guy. So he has this guy, Dr. Richard Gold, and so literally every day I have to talk to Richard Gold, either at the hospital, what's going on, what's his thing, what do we need to do, blah, blah, blah. And this goes on, you know, for a month or so, six weeks. And then finally I get the call from Richard Gold saying, you know, you better you know, you, you better assemble now because he's probably not going to last more than a couple hours. So me, I had a girlfriend and my dad and my stepmother, we all go back. And that was it. And, you know, he died, you know, an hour later. And then so then I had to take care of the stuff with Dr. Gold. And and again, he, he wasn't much older than I was at the time. And so anyway, OK, years go by. So that's 77. I don't know, like in the 90s, uh, I need I, I needed you know, I just wanted to go get a physical and I hadn't had one in years. So I needed I wanted to find a new internist. So I call a friend and they go, oh, go to this guy. And uh, so, of course, I go. And I mentioned something about Groucho and he goes, why are you mentioning Groucho? I go, well, cause he was my grandfather. And he goes, really? And he goes, oh, I was the doctor that took care of him, you know, in those, in those last couple of months. So he, so the, the internist that a friend of mine sent me to, who's, who's still my internist was the guy that, you know, that was overseeing Groucho, you know, wow. I mean, isn't that so weird? Absolutely. Wow. That's incredible. And, and you're sure he wasn't a horse doctor. <laughs> Yeah, he might have been. It was a pretty big pill, but uh, you know, <laughs> you're a pretty big pill yourself. All right, mm. are you drinking wine? Love that. My God, it's, what time uh, is it? Twenty there? to eight, so it's okay. 
Oh my the sun, god! The sun is well right, over fit. the yard arm. Oh, that's so great. Are you now? Are you guys like in lockdown and everything? What's going on with you guys? Yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. There. That's what the wine's all about. Yeah. Yes, okay, yeah, I got the weed. We, we, st- we start Oops, in the morning and then <laughs> we finish up about two o'clock in the morning. And then... That's good, good. And yeah. so what is it? You're not allowed to go out or is everything closed? No, we're allowed to go out, but uh, yeah. it's not supposedly only for essential purposes. Right, yeah, which I think they're going to start here again in California. I keep reading. They've already started. They have a curfew now. All right, I'm, I've, I've kept you now from getting to the, the gist of the show. Uh, yes, indeed, but nothing but a pleasure. Um, oh, well, you're it's happy to oblige. And any moment of this could go on for hours. I'm sure neither okay. us nor our audience would mind. But, all right, well, but by all means, I'll come back. Okay. Let's, let's transport ourselves to MGM in 1935 and uh, take a look at this flick. Um, we have been spacing out the deep dives because there are really so few Marx Brothers movies. Uh, and Bob has engineered the master order in which we're attacking the films themselves. Uh, and so we have finally gotten to A Night at the Opera, which is, uh, which is a big one. It's one of the films that has been thought of as perhaps a masterpiece. Some still consider it the Marx Brothers best film. Um, I think most of us feel that it is uh, a little further down on the list than that. Um, but it is one of the richest subject matters. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we will definitely get into it. Uh, but regardless, it is certainly one of the films that there's the most to say about. And partly that's because it's different from all the films uh, that came before. And right at the beginning of the film, in the opening credits, we're confronted with some of those important changes. Um, Matthew, I want to read a little bit from your book. Um, Matthew in the Annotated Marx Brothers talks about the very title, A Night at the Opera, which we've come to accept as not only the title of this movie, but a very Marx Brothers title, uh, to the point when, when people are referencing the Marx Brothers, they always say, ah, oh, it's a night at the something, a day at something. Uh, but this title's iconoclasm has, has faded a little bit over time. Matthew says, the unlikeliness of the collision is deliberately played upon. The very title carries this frisson, a brilliant juxtaposition, the Marx Brothers promising wildness and chaos, and the deliberately classy, sober-sounding A Night at the Opera. We're so familiar with this title now, uh, dot, 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 we forget how clever and exciting it must have sounded, what a masterstroke it is, just how funny a title it is. Audiences would have seen that title and laughed at it, and it carries a palpable tingle of anticipation. Yeah, and we should note that the title was released like almost a year before the film came out, right? Right when the Marx is signed with MGM, so there was a lot. There was a lot of buildup. Yeah, and after all that, you know, monkey business, horse feathers, duck soup, and the next yeah. one is called what? Night of the Opera. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you also talk, Matthew, about the change in billing that occurs here. Mm, which suddenly. Is- very mysterious. Suddenly, Chico leaps up to second place. And <laughs> a lot of people have said, oh, you know, well, these things, you know, they probably didn't even notice or, or something like that. But it, no, it can't be. Billing is one of the most arduously sorted out things uh, in, in, in any movie. And if Chico has changed billing, somebody has made that decision. And I can only think... 
although my every instinct rebels against it, that 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 Chico made that uh, a little a little sweetener in the deal that, by all accounts, he was instrumental in uh, in them getting the 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 Thalberg MGM deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, uh, "I'd I'd like to go up to second place, please." It can't be an accident. Billing is never an accident. Do you, do you think billing, even back then, was as way you know as was as important as it is now? I think so, yeah. If not, if not more so, but but certainly as, yeah. And uh, it's always been uh, Groucho Harpo Chico, and suddenly yeah. it goes Groucho Chico Harpo. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, you know, they should have been alphabetical, and and then the matter would never have arisen. And nobody is going to think, oh well, Groucho's not the main character suddenly, because you only have to look at the film to see that he is. Um, but but you know, it wasn't alphabetical. It was always priority billing. Groucho's always mm-hmm. first, as because as he's always the main character. Uh, and suddenly, r- ironically, right at the point where Chico starts to recede in importance in these MGM films, uh, he he leaps up in billing. It's it's a, a perplexing matter. Yeah, that is, I've never even thought about. That mm. actually is perplexing. Mm. Yeah, I never, never even. Yeah, that's. Does that, are there are there other people that weigh in on this and have any explanation for it? Other, I mean, I think the explanation of since Chico was instrumental in making the deal, that 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 might be. You that know, makes sense. Be, yeah, it's just hard to imagine him caring that much. You know, it's it's. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then in the same category of uh, billing and cast listing, uh, this is the first time we are flying as a trio. The first mm-hmm. Marx Brothers movie without Zeppo, who by this time was already a fairly successful agent. Uh, Robert Bader in Four of the Three Musketeers notes that um, around the time, just after the brothers had signed with Thalberg to make Night at the Opera, uh, Zeppo had a meeting with Thalberg in his other capacity as an agent. He was right. trying to get Thalberg to sign one of his other clients. And he threatened <laughs> that if MGM didn't sign his client, he would rejoin the Marx Brothers. <laughs> um, and, and there are, I think, in the Night at the Opera, Zeppo's absence is felt, whatever we may make of Zeppo's contribution to the first five films, um, among the things that feel different in a night at the opera is uh, is the absence of Zeppo or the absence of a fourth Marx brother anyway. Taken over by Alan Jones. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Not least as well. a sounding board to Groucho, in fact. So you, you, an awful lot of Groucho's material in the first five films is delivered to Zeppo. Right. Zeppo, yes, he stands there not doing very much, but, but that figure... Uh, that character, that role, is very much part of Groucho's uh, comic armory, and you d- you do notice its absence. Well, uh, but I get, you're right, and but I think part of that is the fact, you know, that that Thalberg did not want to, you know, as I as we as I talked about in the in the you know the the movie that I I wrote. Well, I mean, I mean, it's just common knowledge, but he didn't, you know, he didn't want to make just a laugh machine. You know, Woody Allen always refers to those his early movies as laugh machines, you know, banana. So it's basically like if you say what's Woody Allen's best movie to me, the the Woody thing is kind of like the Marx Brothers thing, which is, you know, what what's a better movie, bananas or Annie Hall? Okay. Mm-hmm. So I mean, they're they're two completely kind of different different m- movies. You know, again, one is a one is what Woody calls a laugh machine. And uh, you know, and and Annie Hall is a completely different, sophisticated you know, movie, you know, for everybody and women and everything. And, and that's kind of what Thalberg, you know, wanted to do when he made a night at the opera. He didn't want, you know, 
Right. Women didn't particularly, you know, flock to Marx Brothers movies and there was just too much of all the stuff going on. So he wanted to do a different thing. So I'm not sure. Again, I, I to me, when somebody says, what's the favorite? I always go, well, you know, pick one from A and pick one from B and you kind of do it. I don't it's to me, it's comparing apples and oranges. I mean, everybody's entitled to say what what's their favorite movie. But I think, again, they're they're sort of stylistically completely different. The other problem is we, we don't have the luxury of having like six great MGM mm. movies at the market because really they I mean, just do a graph and they pretty much each one gets progressively like worse. And, uh, you know, I mean, not and they're not necessarily bad, but they don't you know, they you can just see the quality kind of going down. Yeah. And, you know, whatever you think of what uh, Thalberg did to the Marxes and their style, you know, even if you're not a big fan of it, you have to admit that he totally succeeded in what he was attempting to do here in, in expanding their appeal because they were never bigger. Yeah. Another mild irony, I think, with, uh, with Alan Jones is that he, as well as being the romantic lead and singing some nice songs and so on, he also gets to have a lot more fun and get involved in the comedy, right. certainly more than any of the other MGM romantic leads, but arguably more than Zeppo a lot of the time. You know, he, he gets to be stuck in the trunk. He gets to be one of the bearded aviators. And, and yeah. also, I was yeah. struck today when I was looking at it, when he comes out of the trunk, he's sort of almost dressed like a Marx brother. He's not dressed like a romantic lead. He's wearing a kind of a paisley shirt and a striped tie and a, and a very kind of proletarian jacket and it really all, all he needs is a battered top hat or something you know and, and he, he really could be a Marx brother yeah. and that's really unique to you to a night at the opera that whole center section yeah. with the brothers on the ship and the as the aviators that's really the only time at MGM where this supposed romantic lead really took part in the hijinks with the brothers and all the yeah. other films it's it's they're very separate and they just like, with Ken, like yeah. Kenny Baker yeah, Kenny Baker and Athens, and and also they, I think the romantic, I think they got worse as each movie kind of went on. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, even even the later MGM ones. I mean, again, even though the quality went down, the some of the comedy stuff is great. It's just kind of the the you know the rest of it around it just wasn't as good. And you know that's probably you know due to Thalberg dying. I have a feeling because I don't think anybody cared about the stuff as much as he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to mention for the folks at home, the screenplay uh, Andy uh, mentioned a moment ago is uh, an unproduced screenplay called Irreverent, written by Andy Marks and William McCardle, yes, which is a- about the making of this film, A Night at the Opera. Andy was kind enough to let us read it, and so we may refer to it. Uh, I hope many more people will get to uh, to read or see it at some yeah, it's point. Yeah, I mean, we have a producer. It's being, you know, the, you know, shopped around, as they say in Hollywood. Good to know. So, you know, and we've, we've, I mean, this is a project that we've been, you know, kind of near to, near and dear to our hearts. And, you know, we've been out, you know, we've, you know, for a long time, we were just pitching it, you know, we had a producer and, you know, so we'd go around and we'd pitch it to all the sort of places, but, you know, it's a, it's kind of a hard movie to, to pitch. And then, you know, it's period. Uh, and, you know, that's, a, that's always hard. There's also the thing that, you know, half the people you go to have no idea who the, who the, I mean, they literally don't know much about the Marx brothers. I mean, we pitched it at Netflix and it was like, I mean, they kind of know, but they really don't. And I mean, we, you know, and our movie is, is, it's about family. I mean, it's about all kinds of stuff, but you know, you do kind of run into that wall. Uh, so anyway, then the pan, when the pandemic hit, we just said, well, you know, let's just write it. You know, we got, you know, cause it's, it, this is just too hard of a movie to try to explain. So we wrote it. So we basically hold up and we, we wrote it and, you know, so, you know, we have this producers like, you know, going around and, and doing it, you know, now we're kind of, we're kind of running into the thing. We literally, people have literally 
said this off the record, but they go, well, you know, it's about what it's about, but like, it's about, you know, four white guys or we, you know, or, we, or three, you know, it's, it's, a, it's about three white guys. Like who really cares about that anymore? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, people have said that. So I don't well, know. I would think the, mo- the least the moderate success that that Stan and Ollie film had would, would help you. Yeah. Out which is bit. amazing that that movie did as well as it did. Well, I don't know. I mean, well, again, we'll see. It's a little, again, it's because of the pandemic. I mean, it's, you know, mm-hmm. you gotta, it's, it's the whole world is sort of different and, you know, it's very, you know, you can't really do me. Nobody's doing meetings. I mean, it's just the, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. but uh, you know, we're, we, we need what we, what we need is a sort of a, you know, a champion, a, you know, that really, you know, loves, you know, like I, I believe, uh, I, I believe you need a Thalberg. Yeah, or, you know, like Judd Apatow, like I guess his favorite Marx Brothers yeah. movie is Night at the Opera. So, I mean, you just you just need a guy that can kind of champion, and it, you know, it's it's probably a Netflix movie or something. Mel Brooks has always been a big fan. Yeah, yeah, Mel would be cool. So I don't know. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We shall see what you know. Mm-hmm. She's out there, you know, trying to sell it. So and, you know, no, we have managers and agents doing it, but you know, it's a it's a, such a weird world now. But hopefully, it'll get made. So we we shall see. We we all hope so. And um, okay, and on the subject of screenwriters, um, one of the things that is uh, reassuring about the opening credits of A Night at the Opera is the return of the names of George S. Kaufman and Maury Riskind. Yes. Uh, one of the things Thalberg definitely did right was mm-hmm. not taking no for an answer when, when Groucho told them who he thought their best writers were. Mm-hmm. Uh, no less than Kalmar and Ruby had taken a pass at the screenplay. Uh, James Kevin McGinnis, who's also credited, came up with yes. the original story and invented some of the plot. Um, Kalmar and Ruby made more significant contributions. Um, Matthew has uh, argued um, in, in the annotated and elsewhere that maybe the biggest reason why Night at the Opera is such a high, on such a high level quality-wise, uh, which drops off so quickly after this film, is because of Kaufman and Riskin's involvement. Yes, I think not only not only that they're good, I and mean, obviously they're they're the you know they're the best there is at what they do, but but also I think I think there's a more fundamental difference as well, particularly if you look at Groucho's performance in the in the Paramount films, uh, as opposed to the other MGM films. Uh, Groucho is always sort of standing to one side of the scene. He's always kind of halfway between the characters and us. So the characters converse with each other, and Groucho kind of comments. Uh, and, and if they do try and engage him fully and bring him in, he either insults them or he gives them a non sequitur. Um, and he uh, and he always kind of maintains that distance. And that disappears in the later MGMs. He, he becomes much more a character integrated in, into the drama. And in A Night at the Opera, he's still, he's still that paramount Groucho. He's still not really fully involved. So he'll, he'll make a comment to mm. Margaret Dumont, and then right. he'll look at us and say, she figures that one out, she's right. good. You know, uh, right. and so really, I think I think we do need to start thinking about drawing the line not between Duck Soup mm-hmm. and the Night of the Opera, but between a Night of the Opera and a Day at the Races, right. because he's he's still absolutely the authentic Groucho here. I, I absolutely think that, uh, without making a judgment on the film as a whole, that after Animal Crackers, I think Groucho has his best material in a Night at the Opera. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with uh, both that, and I would agree with what Matthew said. I mean, that's, that's absolutely right. 
Uh, I mean, he only, it, it, it he only tends to. Uh, sorry, he only tends to come into the scene when he's with his other brothers. If he's talking to Chico or he's interacting with Harpo, then he goes right into the scene. But with other characters, he always maintains this this the kind of invisible wall where he's nearer to us than he is to them, and that's what changes. And it hasn't changed here. He's still the Groucho we want him to be. Now, do you do you not feel though that you? I mean, and I totally agree with you. But don't you think there's still a little bit of that? I mean, maybe it's less, but in Day at the Races? Slightly, yeah, but no, noticeably less. Notably less every time from, yeah, from here yeah. on, yeah. Plus the fact that, you know, he's a horse doctor and he's trying to hide it and is nervous and afraid of being found out for, for most of the film, you know, it, it really dilutes the character. That's not, that's not what Grouch right. is all about. That's right. right. The plot itself in A Night at the Opera, it gives Groucho a little more room to do his normal thing. Uh, mm. He's not quite as constrained by the storyline as, as maybe he is in Day at the Races. Um, well, once the credits wrap up and the film proper... <laughs> we're 45 begins, minutes in and we're not through the credits yet? <laughs> we just finished the opening credits. Uh, the movie begins then very abruptly. In fact, it begins in the middle of a sentence. Uh Gentleman has not arrived yet, is the first thing we hear a, a waiter say. And that's because the original opening of this movie, along with some other material in this movie, was excised after the fact. What do we know about this? Well, it was it Italy, yeah. It was... Um... Uh, all references to Italy that were possible to remove uh, have been removed. And it was a while before people even kind of fully cottoned on to that. And then once they had, the assumption was that it was done during the war because Italy was a uh, an enemy power and it would affect the re-releases and so on. But what we've, what we've, narrowed it down now and and established finally established is what i speculatively said in, in the book which is that it was it was pre-war and it wasn't done uh because italy was the enemy it was actually done to appease uh easily ruffled uh italian feathers and it was done in it was done in two stages so even in the film itself in the actual film that they shot we can already see uh changes being made to to uh kind of ease uh the film's journey into into italy so for instance the three aviators who are a, a kind of a parody of uh, italo balbo the italian aviator uh who had a similar reception in america uh they're they're not named and even in the newspaper that you can see they're actually um described as greek or they're called santa pulos the santa pulos brothers so they yeah. appear to be greek the other the other uh interesting change is is sig ruman's character which absolutely bizarrely changes name and this is the only time i've ever seen this changes his name halfway through the shooting script for the first half of the shooting script he's called arturo julie and everybody refers to him as julie and literally halfway through the script he changes into herman gottlieb so so what i think is happening is they're already changing italian references that it would be reasonable to suppose uh might be offensive in italy so they're not taking the piss out of italo balbo anymore and the fact that gottlieb is such a buffoon uh they've decided not yeah. to make him italian but all the other italian references obviously are left in uh, what then happened, bizarrely, is um, the incredibly touchy fascist Italian reception that the film received necessitated the making of further changes, which, which involved actually cutting, uh, well, we believe, cutting the negative, don't we? Yeah. 
Um, so, so any Italian reference that it's possible to snip out, even down to literally one line, like in the Chico Groucho uh, contract scene. The greatest tenor in the world. The fellow that sings at the opera here? Sure. What's his name? Where do you care? It's Mike can't pronounce it. Was originally, uh, he's from Italy. What do you care? I can't pronounce no. it. And just that little bit of a line has been snipped out. And there's a lot of those. And there's a lot of those. But, but you know, at the same time, you know, he, he's, Chico is Italian. Alan Jones is called Riccardo Baroni, right. uh, Rudolfo Lasparri. So in a way, um, yeah. you know, they're, they're on a hiding to nothing. And then what? There's Italian signs all over the opera house. Italian signs, yeah. yeah, but but you know others have been cut out. You know, the start of the Harpo scene is so choppy as well yeah. because some establishing shots of it being in Milan have been cut out. Um, but of course, it all went for naught because in 1938 Italy banned the film anyway. So uh, <laughs> un- unfortunately, um, you know, we're left with this choppy version, as we know and as we've discussed before. There is a there is a, a print in Hungary which Allegedly. Uh, has got some of it in. Uh, some of the dialogue cuts are in there, but that opening long sequence before the first scene that we have, which was a kind of a mm. musical number, uh, set in a, a bustling, a kind of cliche Italy full of merry peasants and so forth. All of that is lost, and so far as we know, uh, at this point, lost beyond retrieval. And if uh, anyone at home wants to listen back, it is in episode six of the March okay. Brothers Council podcast that our friend Tom Rocks, who got to look at some of that. Night at the Opera Print in Hungary. Uh, he, he reports on his findings there mm-hmm. uh, in episode six of this show. Um, yeah, so, but once that uh, waiter delivers his half a line, uh, we are right away into a good comedy scene with Groucho at the very top. Um, we get the immortal line, you remind me of you. We get Margaret Dumont, who often does deliver material that is in its own right funny, asserting that it is too late to dine. That's always a drag when you get to that part of the night where you're still hungry, but <laughs> yeah, it's too late to dine. Uh, we meet Harriman Gottlieb, uh, director of the New York Opera Company. Another line that Dumont has in this scene that amuses me that I think only Kaufman and Riskin would have given her. It's incredible as it may seem, Mrs. Claypool isn't as big a sap as she looks. How's that for lovemaking? I think the Europeans do it better. <laughs> That's a bit of Kaufman-esque social satire that uh, uh, even Kalmar and Ruby, I don't think, would have would have had her say that. You know, it's easy to look at Gottlieb and just peg him as a villain, you know, with the mustache and the, the accent and everything, and Groucho insulting him. But when you think about it, he's not really a villain. He's, he's not. looking out for the opera's interest. He's looking out for Mrs. Claypool's interest. And he really doesn't do anything uh, that he, somebody in that position shouldn't do. Yeah. And he's he's coddling Laspari because Laspari is an investment and Laspari is valuable to him. But when... Um, and, he, and he doesn't seem opposed to the uh, giving Baroni a shot at some point. Exactly, he, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Some, sometime when he has yeah. a reputation. Yeah. It's true. Laspari is the villain you boo in this piece. Um, and indeed, he does get booed by the end of the movie. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, Gottlieb is, is not a thoroughly reprehensible guy, nor is he thoroughly likable in the Roscoe W. No. Chandler mold i mean he does say he says you know your husband left you all alone with eight million dollars i mean he is a little hung up on that and toward the end his treatment of of driftwood and company is a little more it's not malicious but he he is um he is very eager to uh to see these people thrown in jail uh nevertheless he's not quite a a mustache twirling villain such as he himself would play in some subsequent uh marx brothers outings 
Um, anybody have anything else about this first scene before we move on? Yeah, there, do you guys, because you're just talking about Mar- Margaret Dumont, there, there seems to be one, and I've noticed it a few times, where it looks like she's almost like she's trying to keep from laughing. You know, like she, she, I'm reminded of like when you watch those Carol Burnett shows and they can't keep a straight face. There's this one moment (laughs) in that dining scene where it's like, and you know, the thing they always say that about, you know, that Margaret Dumont never understood any of the jokes or anything. Well, it's funny because in this thing, there's this one, I I, I don't remember after which thing, but it it literally looks like she's trying to stifle a laugh and like she obviously got the joke. There are a few moments like that. And it's always lovely, lovely to see. It is. Also, um, it, it the, the, the woman that Groucho is originally dining with uh, remains yes. in folk. And, and watches. Uh, and for the whole scene, watches. And she also is clearly very amused, yeah. which is nice, I think. I was reminded, I had forgotten this. Um, I was reminded looking through Robert Bader's book last night um, that on the night at the opera tour, when they took some of this material on the road to test it in front of audiences, which is the main subject of Andy's uh, screenplay, um, Margaret Dumont didn't actually go with them on the night at the opera tour. Ah, right. I didn't know that. Her, uh, she, was on the, she was on the races one. Wasn't she, she was on the races tour, but yeah. on the yeah. opera tour, her part was played by Dorothy Christie, who is familiar from some other comedies. She was Mrs. Laurel in Sons of the Desert um, in 1933. Uh, Interesting to imagine. In my mind, of course, it's Dumont on stage with them uh, in the opera. Well, we don't know whether she just didn't want to do the tour or whether they hadn't locked her in for the film yet, do we? We don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Although it's hard to imagine that role wasn't written with her in mind. Right. Uh, Yeah, we don't actually know that. It's a good point. Uh, she had been on tour with them last in 1931 when they did their British tour. Uh, then she traveled with them and appeared with them in England. But, um, but since between 1931 and the races tour in 36 or 7, um, she only worked with them on film. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, moving along from this scene, we meet Harpo, who is using some throat spray to improve his singing voice. Uh, it seems like a, a, an amusing enough throwaway gag, but in uh, the very earliest draft of Night at the Opera by James Kevin McGinnis, uh, that was built into it as a joke. Harpo played the greatest tenor in the world in that version um, mm-hmm. and just happened to never use his voice anytime in the story. Mm-hmm. Um But we barely have a chance to come to terms with the idea of Harpo using throat spray because we then have to come to terms with the idea of Harpo being rather sadistically beaten by Walter Wolf King as Rodolfo Lasperi. Um, This is the first big piece of evidence in the movie of the new approach, the Thalberg method of um, drumming up sympathy for the Marx Brothers by having them be the victims of the film's heavies. Uh, Harpo is beaten fairly savagely and, and yeah. whipped in this scene, um, but he also has a chance to show off a succession of costumes. I, I think this film is so good, um, so well written, that it you know it almost gets away with with even these things. I think you know the scene later on where Groucho goes into uh, Kitty Carlisle's cabin and get, and gives her the letter for you know it's a very soppy scene, but I, for some reason I, I I don't mind it. It's mm. it's written well and it's played well, and I think also this this bit with Harpo they almost get away even with this because Harpo is is you know is being quite spunky and he has all those costumes on one over the other. Um, I think it just it just finally misses when 
he goes back into yeah. the room. <laughs> yeah. And then we hear the sounds of him beaten again. And I've seen this right, film. Right. Um, I've seen all their films with a, with a live audience, luckily. Uh, but this one I've seen by far the most. It's the one that gets revived the most often in Britain. And I've seen it literally uh, 20 plus times. And the audience never knows what to do with that <laughs> moment. Uh, and it always gets a very nervous ripple of laughter because people are thinking is this meant to be funny that he's gone back in and he's clearly getting yeah. a, 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 a load of slaps and punches uh and it and it isn't a very misguided moment i think it should end it should end with 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 kitty comforting him and then they just get away with it perhaps the better ending would have been for uh, the door to open in Laspari to have been tossed out and it was harpo who had been doing the beating <laughs> yes yes <laughs> No, it's it's like the thing. The it's like the ending of a day in the life in Hollywood. You know, where where literally, like you you go yeah. to the theater and, and people did not know how to react. Yeah. You know, to that ending. I mean, people yeah. laugh. I mean, they just it's it's it was and it was an uncomfortable thing because you didn't really know like how you were supposed to react to that. Yeah. Yeah. Gottlieb says that this is the final night of the opera season. So are we are we to infer that uh, Harper was a model employee until this moment? <laughs> right. Yeah, Les, Les doesn't strike us as a particularly tolerant chap. So yeah. yeah, if he's kept him kept him this long, yeah. <laughs> well, it does allow us to meet Kitty Carlisle in the role of Rosa Castaldi. Um, Kitty Another Carlisle, Italian. who appears and yes, an un, un, unambiguously Italian character who offers Harpo sympathy. And uh, Kitty Carlisle is one of the great leading ladies in the canon. Um, she is perhaps best known in addition to this film for having been a regular panelist on To Tell mm -hmm. the Truth yeah. from 1956 into the late 70s. She was also married, of course, to Moss Hart, great playwright and often collaborator of George S. Kaufman. Yeah. They were married from the 40s to the 60s. And she was in real life sometimes an opera star. She made her mm. uh, debut at the Metropolitan Opera in Die Fledermaus in 1966 mm. and did other legitimate operatic uh, appearances. Later in life, she became a sort of beloved member of the New York City arts advocacy world. And um, I and many others uh, crossed paths with her briefly mm. at uh, arts-related uh, social occasions in New York until... Her death in 2007, she was very Wasn't active. she in Radio Days? Oh, yep, really? she's in Woody Allen's Radio Days singing yeah. uh, uh, They're Either Too Young or Too Old, mm -hmm. I think is the song she sings there. Uh, yeah, a delightful person and a great performer. And um, I think one of the of, of the Marx Brothers uh, romantic leading ladies, one of the most consistently loved. Yeah, lovely mm -hmm. and sweet, but also, you know, she knows what she's doing. I love that line where she says, uh, there may be something in what you say. You know, she, <laughs> yeah. she, you know, she clearly is on the right wavelength. Yes. And you know, the scene later when... Uh, Groucho says the only tenor I could ever tolerate was uh, a guy named uh, Ricardo Baroni. Yeah. The way she says, Ricardo, <laughs> I, there's no man in the world who wouldn't want his name said in that tone by Kitty Carlisle. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> um, and shortly thereafter, we also meet her counterpart, Alan Jones. Uh, we talked about him a little bit earlier. He is the romantic leading man of this piece. In some ways, he inherits some of what Zeppo would have done uh, had he been in this movie, although it's not cleanly a Zeppo role. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a first big break for Alan Jones, who on the strength of this film is cast in Showboat the following year, um, and he returns in A Day at the Races with the Marx Brothers, 
the year after that, he later shared uh, the screen with other great comedians, Fanny Bryce, Abbott and Costello, Olsen and mm -hmm. Johnson, did a lot of stage musical work regionally through the 1980s. He also had another career breeding and raising racehorses on mm -hmm. his ranch in California, despite Maureen O'Sullivan's objections, I suppose. <laughs> and... <laughs> And back in um, our episode uh, that Frank Ferrante appeared on, episode three, Frank told us that... Uh, Wait a minute. Frank Ferrante was on before me? <laughs> oh, I'm afraid It's an so. outrage. He, it's an outrage. He warmed up the guest chair I, for I you. I should have you whipped. <laughs> we'll, we'll send you a horse. It's all right. It's fine. It's fine. I like Frank. I'm kidding. Frank told us that uh, Alan Jones used to go around with a highlights reel of all the scenes that he was in in opera and races. This is the, the opposite of what most Marx Brothers fans would want. He, he cut out all the Marx Brothers stuff and just kept the Alan Jones scenes. God, the only, like I said, the only thing better than that would be a Kenny Baker highlight reel. <laughs> wow. Uh, so there's Jones and Carlisle for you. Um, perhaps uh, even more exciting than this, we meet Chico, who gets the mail, and then meets Harpo. They well, let me go back for a second. When Chico first comes in, you know, he tries to get his mail and he makes a little joke how he doesn't have a job and doesn't have any place to get his mail. And he laughs at himself, which is, you know, a little more self-aware than he has been in the past. You know, compare that to when uh, he's not eating in monkey business for three days, yesterday, today and tomorrow. You know, there he's totally serious. But here he seems a little more, you know, self-effacing and aware of his place in society. Yeah, yeah. I think Groucho changes least at this point. Harpo changes function, yeah. but he doesn't actually change his his comic persona. But Chico is the one that yeah. that straight off the bat changes his comic persona. He becomes the you know the the pal, the uh, the helpful friend. Yeah, yeah. We have these more you know traditional storylines at MGM, and it's a little tougher to bring the Marxes into them. So. You know, Chico is used for the express purpose, at least at the beginning of these films, uh -oh. to tie the Marxes in. He's the one who usually calls Groucho and brings him into the storyline. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's the beginning of avuncular Chico. Yeah. Avuncular. Yeah, I like that. Um, we get a sort of circle around uh, the ways in which Harpo has been, to some extent, stripped of his powers uh, after he and Chico meet and exchange identical gifts of salamis harpo mm. goes to cut the salami with an axe but it's not an axe that he keeps in his coat all the time mm -hmm. it's an axe that's conveniently located yeah. nearby um, and this will happen a few times in this film later on he needs a pair of scissors to attack a butterfly uh, but he finds the scissors uh, not yeah. not concealed in his uh, wardrobe yeah. mm -hmm. Um, nevertheless, it's a very happy moment. I love the Harpo and Chico greeting here, the enthusiastic yeah. uh, embrace between them. It's a, it's a lovely moment. Yeah. Uh, Chico and Alan Jones have an interesting conversation referencing all, the, all those years we studied at the conservatory. Um, this is the beginning of an MGM tradition that is um, underlined in the big store. Chico as a sort of music mm. academic figure. <laughs> and he also mentions working in the circus, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, we actually get three Future Marks references here, because he also says, you know, you bet them my life at the end of the scene. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's just a, a lot of things pointing the way forward. Checo uh, had the gift of time travel. I think we've proved that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. The next time we see Groucho, he's riding in a carriage outside the opera house in what we know as Milan. 
Um, and he has the memorable line, on account of you, I nearly hide the opera. Which goes back to the original. Such a great line. Yeah. Uh, That's a Kalmar and Ruby line from the uh, Kalmar and Ruby treatment that preceded uh, Kaufman and Riskin's work here. He he follows that up with that, that, you know, the second kind of topper to that line. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Once more around the block and slowly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then uh, the scene in the opera house, Groucho's in the box with Dumont and uh, Sig Ruman. Um, Gottlieb sends Lasperi an invite to see him by way of Harpo. Lasperi tries to woo Rosa and is so unsuccessful that he attacks Harpo, who he finds busily (laughs) whistling and banging on dishes. Um, That leads to Lasperi being knocked unconscious and one of the best scenes in cinema. Knocked unconscious three times, by the way. <laughs> yeah, he That's really right. takes a beating here. Yeah. Now, I, I'm going to just tell you that I, one of my daughters, who is now 30, uh, she, she, she used to walk around, go, and she would go up to total strangers, and she'd say, uh, pardon me, is it hard to sleep with such big buttons on your pajamas? <laughs> <laughs> when, she was like, when she was like seven, or like, I remember. <laughs> she, you know, she thought that was very amusing. <laughs> uh, I wonder... At- the contract scene, which I'm sure we, we have a lot to say about, um, but just to open that part of our conversation, I'm always amused when it's over and we cut back out to the wide shot and we are reminded that they are, Groucho and Chico are standing on Les Perry's <laughs> yeah. unconscious body this whole time. So on the road tour, was that, was that clear to the audience the whole time? Were they standing there each with a foot planted on uh, Les Perry? <laughs> I would guess yes. I mean, what what else would he have done? I mean, would he have, like stood up and left and then come back? I mean, you didn't have the luxury of you know going to a close shot and then things. So I would I would assume he was just was there. it Wolfgang? On yeah, the I can't remember. I'm not sure. It's a good question because obviously there wouldn't be a lot of Lasbari in the tour, would it? Because it would be just the comedies, right? Because it was the comedy stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's why I wonder if maybe the on tour, maybe the contract scene really was just the contract scene. Mm. Yeah, they could have gotten in and out of it differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, what do we think? I know that we, in a previous episode, we discussed all the Groucho and Chico double scenes. Uh, so mm. we have discussed this one, but, um, it's certainly worth, uh, at least a little bit of commentary here. Um, for my money, it's maybe the best scene in this film and one of the great Marx Brothers scenes ever. I really wish I could have seen this, uh, scene develop on tour because I'm guessing it was quite a bit different when they started off and, you know, they honed it and pared it down to, you know, the nitty gritty. Yeah. Yeah. One of the nice things about it is that it's integrated into the story. It works toward the plot the way everything had to here. Um, But it doesn't uh, sacrifice the usual Marx Brothers approach of defeating the purpose. Um, You know, there was a way to get this done that would have served Groucho's interests in the story better. Um, But it is just a lot more fun to rip clauses out of the contract. Mm -hmm. Um, And And it's a misunderstanding, but nobody's made to look foolish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at the risk yeah. of flogging a dead horse, obviously there are those two or three uncomfortable moments where we have an unnatural pause, uh, which is a, a Falberg innovation uh, to allow for audience laughter based on the timings they made on the on the live tour, which you don't get in the Paramount films. You just get bludgeoned with jokes. And so if you're sat at home watching it on your own, which most people these days will be, mm. there are just those a couple of moments where you see Groucho puffing on his cigar. 
to allow for a laugh that you know that isn't really there but but as soon as you see it in a cinema you you don't notice that and also particularly yeah. um when we when we had our Marx brothers weekend um in 2016 in bath uh we had frank ferrante and frank lazarus doing the scene live um literally uh you know reading off these the contracts in, and tearing them up um you know it just it was obvious just what an effect this scene must have had with audiences on on that tour and just how confident they must have come away thinking yeah we're on to a winner with this one because the way it builds the momentum mm. of the scene um not just the incidental yeah. jokes but the way each each moment kind of piles onto the one before it it, it really is a superb job of writing one of my favorite moments in it is an incidental gag, uh, not really related to the, the ripping of the contract, but it's uh, Groucho handing Chico the pen. Now, just uh, just you put your name right down there, and then the deal is, is uh, legal. I forgot to tell you, I can't write. Well, that's all right. There's no ink in the pen anyhow. One of my all-time favorites. One of my yeah. top five, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It also has this visceral quality, this wish-fulfillment uh, aspect of... Anybody who's ever been confronted with a long legal document, all you want to do is tear it apart, (laughs) (laughs) take out all the unnecessary stuff. And as we've talked about before, it's this lengthy scene. There hadn't been anything like it in the last three Mm. Paramounts. It really harkened back to their stage persona and their stage presentation. Right. Again, it's it's because we've got Coffin and Riskin there. You know, yeah. they they would have had a list of things that, to to their mind, yeah. were the essential ingredients of a Marx Brothers film, and one of them would be a scene mm-hmm. like that because they'd already written two plays that had scenes like that. So they must have just thought, without yeah. even considering yeah. the matter, oh, we have to do another one of those. Yeah. But any other set of Hollywood writers probably wouldn't have wouldn't have thought that was a necessity. I mean, wouldn't you love to have been like a fly on the wall while they were developing that scene? I mean, just. Mm-hmm. The intricacies oh, yes. of that, of, of the, I mean, that, I mean, for any of them, it would yeah. be great, but I mean, just, mm-hmm. you know, did they do a lot of drafts? Did they do, you know, did it, did it just come right out? I mean, it's, you know, how much work did they do shaping it up? I mean, it's just, that's such yeah. a great scene. I'm sure it was developed on tour, yeah. you know, through, through performance trial and error. Right. Yeah. And I, I suppose that's why it does, as you point out, Bob, uh, it does feel like we're back um, to the, level not just the level but the same sort of mode that we were in during coconuts and animal crackers uh, like we we've got wit to spare here we can we can go we can do this for pages folks yeah, yeah. um and yeah it, it's yeah. an absolute pleasure mm-hmm. um all right anything else on the contract scene just one other thing that struck me this time for the first time um obviously uh well not obviously um I have a have a, a certain reputation, whether whether well earned or not, for for being reluctant to believe, uh, you know, Marx Brothers myths. Um, and one of them is that that Chico famously uh, concerned was concerned only about the the quantity of lines, the number of lines, not the quality of them. But there is an extraordinary example of that in this scene, which had, had never struck me before. At the very end, uh, Groucho has that lovely line, "Well, you win the white carnation." And he gives him the carnation from his buttonhole. Chico then walks away and says, I give this to Ricardo. <laughs> and I, I cannot believe, I cannot believe that George S. Kaufman and Murray Riskin wrote, I give this to Ricardo. <laughs> I smell Chico. <laughs> that's, why, that's why he got his billing moved up. Because he came up, yeah. he came up yeah. with that brilliant line. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there are a few lines in this movie that, that do feel like ad libs, whether they are or not. And um, a couple of them come from Chico. Um, there's definitely one that I want to talk about uh, when we get to the breakfast scene. 
Um, well, the next big thing that happens in the film is a musical number, not performed by uh, Laspari, who says, why should I sing for them when I'm not being paid for it? But by Baroni and Rosa, they sing uh, the song alone. Does anybody find it strange that Rosa all of a sudden has decided to go and leave Baroni and just go to America with Les Barry? Us women for you. Since we're since we're jumping to that, have we? Because again, it's, there's another one of my favorite lines here. Are you sure you have everything okay? I've never had any complaints yet. Oh yes. I use that line. You know, at least once a week when somebody <laughs> says, do you have it? I mean, that is, that is yep. the greatest line. I once had a piano teacher, great, great piano, great, great teacher. But I remember him telling me that he thought Alone was one of the worst songs ever written because of that whole, it's like that, you know, that leap of that, like 14 notes or something. <laughs> uh, it, it does go on a while. It's not one of my favorite uh, musical numbers. <laughs> it's generally very well thought of. I, I, I have to confess, I, I find it sort of, it's, it's a very good song, um, musically and lyrically. It's beautifully constructed. It's a lovely song. Um, I don't find it entertaining in the way that I find all of the previous examples of the love songs in Marx Brothers movies. Um, but I think part of it is because, you know, we have... First of all, we're really at MGM in the 30s now, um, yeah. whereas the earlier mm -hmm. Marx Brothers movies had scores that were much more uh, of the jazz age. Um, this is much more of a lush Hollywood feeling. Um, and then also because of the opera theme here, uh, both of the big songs here, Alone and Cosi Cosa, have this operatic quality to them, um, both in the way they're composed and certainly in the way they're sung. Um, they're sung very, very well. But if you're here for the kind of jazzy 20s and 30s fun ambiance, uh, this movie's musical offerings are deliberately different. <laughs> yes, that's true. I mean, I, I like opera, so I, I enjoy it. But yes, I can see why. I mean, I I understand the way it gets laughs. It, you know, normally, whenever anything that's not meant to be funny gets a laugh in the cinema, it annoys me. Uh, and this annoys me too. But but I can see why it's been staged. The way Rosa starts singing yeah. and the way Ricardo starts singing, um, it's it's just it's just not artfully done. Um, but I, I do I do think the song is lovely. Yes. I it was written by Arthur Freed and Nacio Herb Brown, oh. um, who are best known for writing all the songs that wound up in Singing in the Rain, including oh. All I Do is Dream of You, which is Chico's piano solo in this movie. Well, Freed had that whole unit. Didn't Arthur Freed have the whole unit and everything? Yeah, he was a big yeah. MGM yeah. guy. Yeah. yeah. I actually I, I met his grandson, uh, Liz. <laughs> Is it his grandson or his son? I can't ever, I guess maybe it's his grandson, but he lives in LA. He, and uh, I, I actually finally, somebody introduced me to him, but yeah, he, he's actually kind of a cool guy, but yeah, Arthur Freed was great. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, uh, and Nacio Herb Brown wrote some great stuff. Absolutely. So yes. And, and alone, I just want to be clear. I don't dislike the song. I'm, I'm not knocking. It is an excellent song. Um, but for me, you know, why am I so romantic and the monkey doodle do kind of float my boat better. I just think it goes on like a little too long. That's kind of my, I mean, again, you have all this great comedy and then, and, and again, I love music, but it's, it, it, it just has, it just has this feeling. It's like, could, could they end this? I mean, it kind of has the sort of false endings and it just, I don't know. It just, it just seems to go on a, a little too long. 
There are some nice comic things that happen during the song. As Andy says, there's a sort of false ending. The song continues, but our mm. attention is drawn to uh, Chico and Harpo. They greet Rosa, and then Harpo has a great moment going down the line of passengers and yeah. hugging and kissing everybody, mm. um, which is... A- yeah, this is something I've always wondered, and it, it's not so bad here, but uh, like, do you think Harpo is in danger of, of being canceled because of his sort of of his behavior towards women? I mean, and in Night at the Opera, it's not as bad, but in some of the ones, like maybe Duck Soup, it's it's pretty. There's, you know. there's no right or wrong answer to this, but but it does come up a lot, um, and when it does come up, um, just looking at the comments people make in the Facebook group, uh, the comments that, yeah. that that the women make, uh, they the, it's it's overwhelmingly the the answer seems to be overwhelmingly no, it's not a problem, um, and they often talk about well, they're Mark's um, fans though, yeah. Well, yeah, but but they they talk about intent, and they sort of say, you know, mm. we 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 can we trust we trust his intent. We we get that what mm. he's doing is a kind of an innocent, uh, a, a, you know, an exuberant innocence there that there isn't in, you know, I don't know, Benny Hill or something, you know. The, the, yeah, there's, although there's... although I th- I think you know, I mean, part of it does have to do probably. I mean, they're probably excusing it because they're fans. I have, yeah, there's but, a lot but of, there's a lot of other women who would say intent it doesn't mean anything intent if you're doing it you're doing it that's mm-hmm. what they would say you know but that yeah. that's the distinction they draw I think I think they 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 sort of they basically they say we can we we trust him we we okay, trust well, what he's doing well, you know I'm, I'm just I'm, yeah. I'm just happy yeah. to be uh, related to people that are you know on the verge of being <laughs> <laughs> we and we haven't even talked about and and we haven't even talked about uh, the the scene in Day at the Races. Yeah, no. uh, the uh, <laughs> yeah the big musical number that, that that's the one that'll really get them canceled. But, you know, I'm yeah. glad you brought that up. I want to mention something here. You know, there's this uh, assumption that Harpo has been neutered in a night at the opera that he's no longer this sexual being that he was at Paramount that he was castrated in some way. I'm not sure. I totally agree. You know, he's kissing women on the mouth here on the line. He's plying the 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 maids. In the stateroom scene, and, right? That, I was struck by that too. You know, in the finale, he rips the skirt off the dancer, and, and at one point, he's actually going after her shorts. Yes, but uh, pulls back. So I'm not sure that uh, he's been toned down as much as people tend to think. It may be telling that when Harpo actually catches a woman in Animal Crackers who is asleep, no less, he reveals that all he really wants to do yeah. is cuddle. Sleep yeah, and he, and he didn't have to worry about the Hayes Code either. And he still <laughs> That's what Brian Epstein said, I believe, with John Lennon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I guess the next big uh, passage we have in the film is uh, the wonderful sequence of Groucho riding the trunk uh, down the hallway on the ship. Groucho is singing here. There's a lot of spon- seemingly spontaneous acapella song from yeah. Groucho in this movie. Mm-hmm. And here, what he's singing is Ridi Pagliacci. It's the aria Vesti la Juba, which is from Leon Cavallo's opera Pagliacci, uh, about a tragic clown, a sad clown who is betrayed by his wife and, and eventually commits murder. But it's sort of the classic sad clown story. Um, yeah. Countless comedies and comedians have referenced it. And this aria in particular is one of the most accessible and recognizable in all of opera. Um, it's also the very first thing we hear in this movie. The opening titles begin with da 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 da, which is this piece. Um, the lines, Ridi Pagliaccio, it means laugh clown. Um, and 
It became a popular song later. In 1928, there's a silent film called Laugh, Clown, Laugh, based on a play of the same title. That film starred Lon Chaney and was produced by Irving Thalberg. And there was a song associated with it. It's a silent film, so the song's not in the movie. But in connection with this movie, there was a hit song in 1928 called Laugh, Clown, Laugh Mm. by Ted Fiorito, Sam Lewis, and Joe Young. That song is what Groucho is quoting in the poem from Animal Crackers that ends with, so be a pagliaccio and laugh, clown, laugh. Um, it comes up in lots of places. Um, and I just used it in the Home Again presentation. Um, laugh, clown, at your broken love is what the translated lyric says. Laugh at the grief that poisons your heart. So that's what Groucho is declaiming as he makes his way down the hallway. But to which he adds the line, I love you very much. Ridi Pagliacci, I love you very much. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, he swindles a porter out of some money. We see for the first time the three bearded aviators. You know, when he swindles the porter, you could see that the hotel bill is from Milan. So mm. he didn't oh, get everything out of there. Yeah. yeah. I also love the first shot of him when he's not on the drunk, when you see him coming up to his own cabin, and he's doing a kind of tango yeah. with, the, with the hat, uh, moving the hat on his head. I like the, uh, you have change for a tan or something. He goes, yeah. he goes good, but then you won't need the 10 cents I was going to give you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, st- all stuff you can use in present day. I mean, it, it works so great. Yeah. If you want to yeah. get punched, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Um, as Matthew says, the scene where Groucho delivers the letter, um, yeah. although it is part of the Thalberg reinvention, it's obviously planted there to make Groucho sympathetic. Yeah. Uh, it is a hard scene not to like because he mm. is, um, I yeah. guess, because yeah. he is so likable in it. Mm. It's basically his first moment on screen not doing comedy. I guess that's right. Yeah, and he, and he, he totally gets away with it. It really, yeah. it's a nice little moment. It's not overplayed. It's not overstretched. It's it's just just enough, um, and it's very likable. It's like the, those moments in You Bet Your Life, you know, when he when he he reveals himself as as you know a genuinely nice person. It's a, it's just nice to know that you know that he's that he's a nice guy. Mm-hmm. And, and that well, and that's the other thing. Even though you said earlier about you know the Groucho is kind of like halfway between the other people and and you know doing mm-hmm. breaking the fourth wall thing, his acting in the movie is is really solid. Like yeah. not just the 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 comedy stuff, but when he's actually like doing acting, he's actually really good. Yeah, I mean, I think he is a good actor. I mean, I I'm yeah. much I enjoy much more. Uh, some of the later things that, that people don't like so much, like the, the TV version of Time for Elizabeth, I think he's really nice in. I think yeah. he's really nice, nice in The Holdout, that straight yeah. drama he did. Um, I'm, I don't I know that. What's The Holdout? I don't know what that is. The Holdout is a, a 1950s uh, TV play where, in which he plays um, the staid father of a daughter who wants to live unmarried with her boyfriend, played by Dennis Hopper. You're uh, yeah, no, and it, it's 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 it, there's literally one laugh line in it. There's one joke. It's very good. I won't spoil it. Uh, but the rest of the film is entirely straight, and uh, most people don't rate it. But I I think he's really good in it. I think oh, he's a I very good where, actor. Where where is that? Is that somewhere to be seen? The Marx Brothers on TV set that Shout Factory put out. Okay, it's okay. on there, and it's okay. it's uh, absolutely fascinating. But I think I think it's a really good performance. I really yeah. Do. Well, I'd like to see that. Do you like the Mikado? Yeah, I do. Yeah. 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 
It is true. He was a very capable actor, and mm. and uh, this movie is one of his best performances. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, mm -hmm. I think, yeah. Uh, and and perhaps it is because of scenes like this. He is actually he's stretching a little bit, um, even in this movie, which certainly compared to the films that came after it, um, does not represent too dire a compromise of his comedic persona. Um, well, now we uh, now we drop in on uh, Margaret Dumont. Uh, in this scene, Groucho going down the hallway, we sort of catch up with all the characters. He sees Rosa, he sees Gottlieb, always beating around the bush. Um, and then he has a more extended uh, scene with Dumont. One of those is a daybed. <laughs> I want a daybed. Ever since I saw that, I've wanted a daybed. <laughs> the daybed is for when it's too late to have dinner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it all kind of goes together. <laughs> um, anybody got a look at the book Groucho is reading when he? I've tried, and... I've tried, but I failed. <laughs> particularly, I failed particularly because I watch VHS. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first video cassette I ever bought. It was Night at the Opera. cost a cost a hundred dollars. Wow. Well, I mean, I think so. What year would that? I mean, that would have been. I don't. I, mean, I think it was eighty three. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, whatever. It was just I remember there was a, a record store, a place called Music Odyssey, and they were and they just started to stock, uh, you know, VHS, and and they had that. It was a hundred. Well, bucks. ten years later, it was just. <laughs> hang on. Nine pounds, ninety. No, I know. It's so funny. My 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 son goes to college up in San Francisco, and he he proudly he he bought a uh, he, he bought a VHS player in. In, in the in the Goodwill store up there, he and his buddies, and then they bought a copy of Duck Soup for five dollars. You know, this is as good a time as any to mention that A Night at the Opera uh, is not available on Blu-ray. None of the MGM films are, but you can watch it and A Day of the Races actually in high definition uh, through downloads on iTunes and uh, Amazon. So seek those out; they really look wonderful. Yeah, they're good. They're, I actually bought it. I didn't even I didn't even rent it. I figured, you know. It's, you know, it's relatives. I might as well just do that. When buying uh, that that uh, hundred dollar video cassette, Andy, uh, did you say to the cashier, like, uh, you know, uh, you no, see any I resemblance did. between I me didn't. and these guys? <laughs> I know, but I on that note, I remember once going to the Troubadour. You know, that's the big. You know, that's the place we were just talking about where Elton yeah. John, you know, did the thing, and I. Uh, and and uh, I I think I was like had a press pass or something. I was reviewing something there or something. And they go, what's your name? Marks. And, and the woman said, are you related to the great one? And I said, oh, do you mean Groucher? She goes, no, Carl. So that, <laughs> that was 70. So you kind of expected that then. You know, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't quite that. Well, she didn't say Richard. The crowd. Well, that's true. Yeah. I don't, I don't think he had surfaced yet. Thank God. Yeah. yeah. Should we, should we do them all? Him, stretch, stretch marks. We're having, him, we're having him arrested for impersonating a songwriter. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that that the Margaret Dumont scene though is really great. You know, I mean, when he goes in there, that's it's so funny. Yeah, I I love it. One of the things I love in that scene that's an incidental moment is just the hello that they exchange. Hello, hello. It's friendly. Yeah. Oh, they're meeting up on the boat. They know each other. They're friends. They've worked together for years. Hello, how are you? It's, he calls well, it toots. The, toots. The other thing, yes. the other thing that I kind of noticed in Night at the Opera, which you know goes along with that thing where I where I said you could kind of see her withholding a smirk. You know, she, they always, you know, she's always the dowager, right? But I actually thought in this movie, in her own kind of way, she's sort of attractive. Like, she's not really so, mm. like, awful. And mm. you always kind of think about this big kind of heavy, you know, woman lumbering in. And she's, the, but in this one, she's, like, kind of okay. 
think in general, um, compared with her reputation and certainly compared with the things that are said about her in the movies, she is very beautiful and graceful and charming. Yeah. And I think if she weren't, those insults would be a lot harder to swallow. Um, it, it, you know, right. if, if the Marx Brothers seem to be abusing somebody who, who can't take it and picking on genuine <laughs> you know, weaknesses or, or defects that she herself might feel bad about. It might not all be so palatable, but the fact yeah. that she is a formidable figure, she is uh, attractive, and she is sort of this magnificent person, um, we feel like she yeah. can handle what Groucho throws at her. Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely... Uh, if Margaret Dumont burst into tears, you know, when, when he insulted <laughs> right. her, we wouldn't... <laughs> didn't, we, we didn't, wouldn't they do, uh, didn't they do a Hollywood palace together? Yeah. Oh, yes, it's yeah, delightful. Right? Yeah. Talk about laughing. She visibly laughs at numerous jokes in that appearance. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that. I don't remember, but at, I, would, I would imagine. At one point, uh, she says, I'm highly honored, and Groucho says, I thought you were highly Selassie. And uh, <laughs> she laughs. She, she visibly laughs at that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think this brings us up to the very famous stateroom scene, as okay. Joe Adamson calls it. Which um, one is that again? Remind me. Yeah, do, you know, do, you know the, do you know the story about, can I, can I tell you a story about my wife and Joe Adamson? Yeah. <laughs> so my wife, when, my wife was, when my wife was very young, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12, uh, her father was an incredible Marx Brothers fan and uh, started, uh, you know, taking her to Marx Brothers movies. And that was kind of the thing that they did. And, mm. they, and so my, uh, so my, you know, I mean, she's my wife now. But anyway, so back when she was that age, she was like 12 and she went. And she checked, she went to the library. She was so obsessed with the Marx Brothers that she went to the library and checked out, which probably at the time was, was one of the few books, the Joe Adamson book, right? And they were so poor. How poor were they? Yes. <laughs> they were so, they were so poor. You're, you're they were so poor yeah. that she copied the entire book on legal pads okay. in, in longhand. Wow. Okay. And then, return, and then returned the yeah. book. And then she had the book written. So years later, of course, she finally met Joe Adamson and, and, and told him that. I remember when he used to come to the house all the time. He used to come to Groucho's like for, for lunch and stuff. Hmm. That, that was cool. But anyway, okay, night at the opera. I mean, uh, stateroom scene. Well, let me, before we get into the stateroom scene, let me say something that's going to ruin it for everybody forever. <laughs> okay. The very first shots when Groucho goes into the stateroom and checks it out when he first sees it, the room is a lot smaller then than it is at any other point. There is no way that trunk is fitting into that room with him in the bed, but when they—that's cool. I mean, but that's when they it, bring the it. trunk in, they've they've enlarged the set a little bit, and it, it's all fitting in. That's so. a great uh, little tidbit there. There's also on the way into the stateroom scene, there is what I think is an enduring mystery. Uh, What Groucho is singing here: Sing ho for the open highway. Sing ho for the open road. Hello, boss. We've never been able to trace this. Um, If you search for the phrase, sing ho for the open highway in the Marx Brothers Council, you'll find an excellent post written by our friend Tor Lear in 2017. Um, He does, I think, what, as far as I've encountered, the the most investigating into this mystery. Uh, But we really don't know what that is. Groucho may just be making it up. I think he made it up. Uh, That's... that's, that's my opinion. 
It runs through my head all the time and, and has since I was a mm -hmm. child. In an idle moment, I'm very likely to go, sing ho for the open <laughs> highway. I mean, obviously it does fit, doesn't it, with the, the, yeah. the theme of confinement and, and whatever, you know, being, being cooped up, you know, so you can imagine it being something that might just come. But in that previous scene as well with, um, with uh, Kitty Carlisle, there's that uh, yeah. lovely line where she says something about it. I wonder where he is. He's probably roaming the countryside because he hates being mm. cooped up. And obviously, you know, it's just a, a line that sets up the next scene. But it's a lovely image of Alan Jones roaming the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it could also, it could have been one of those things that, you know, I mean, he, he and, and Harry Ruby were such, you know, and they used to yeah. want, you know, they used to go walking together and, you know, writing songs yeah. and, you know, Groucho, yeah. Groucho sang all those and, uh, uh, did, did they write? Uh, they wrote Omaha, Nebraska together, right? Yeah, uh, Harry Ruby and. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. They, it could have just been one of those things that they went. You know, yeah. they were just clowning around, and they came up with some funny lines yeah. or something. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. it even seems to have a meta meaning because in working on making this film, the Marx Brothers went out on the road yes, for the did. first time in, yes, in a long time. In a long time, yeah. Well, uh, Bob, you have pointed out that the stateroom scene, although it is certainly a classic, um, it's a mistake to use just the clip that begins with the arrival of the maids and the room starting to get crowded. Because what leads up to it, the ordering of the food, is just as important in setting up what we're about to see. Yeah, and that's not an original thought of mine. I oh. read that <laughs> well, in Adamson or one of the other books. But the point is, is that the momentum of that ordering scene really kickstarts the the stateroom. You know, as it unfolds, uh, the audience is already laughing from the hard boiled eggs. You know, and hey, have we ever determined exactly how many hard boiled eggs should be delivered to the room? <laughs> that's a good question. I'm sure somebody has. Yes. And does Harpo really honk twelve times when he goes a dozen? I, I didn't. I've never bothered about oh, that. But he goes a he goes a dozen, and then a duck, you know, and then the duck egg. Oh, that's another good question. Yeah, well, I'm going to play it right here. I'm going to edit it in right here, and somebody could count. And two hot boiled eggs. It's either foggy out or make that twelve more hot boiled eggs. Speaking of Joe Adamson, uh, he points out that although the mechanics of the stateroom scene do have a slightly more methodical nature to them than most uh, of the preceding Marx Brothers material, uh, the rationale here is very Marxian. Uh, Groucho's mindset in this scene, Adamson says, the apparent rationale is that if you can't have a large, comfortable room all to yourself, you might get a perverse pleasure out of stretching your discomfort to its fullest measure. <laughs> That's what Groucho is doing here. Okay, if I can't have the room I want, let's make this as miserable as possible. Also, certainly an affront to what we would now call social distancing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, in order, we get two maids, an engineer. And I'm going to pause here because I think we should all take a moment to acknowledge and appreciate Heidi Gassell, Bob's wife, for understanding what? that there is another woman in Bob's oh, life. Yeah. Who haunts his dreams, who monopolizes his waking thoughts, and it is the next person to enter the room, the mysterious manicurist. I haven't even given her an imaginary name. I can't. I can't. I can't, I can't even pin her down that much. She's For anyone who needs catching up here, the manicurist is is the one significant person in this film. Is that right, Bob? Who? Yes. Who we have not been able to identify. Who has a speaking mm -hmm. role? Who also appears on the ship in the alone scene. 
She has a couple of lines, and nobody knows who she is. That is so crazy. That is really yeah. weird. And it's even, it's amazing that you guys, that you guys know this. I mean, that is unbelievable. Yeah. You know, it just came about by accident. I was, I was trying to make a list of everybody in the stateroom and uh, through various sources, I was able to get everybody else's name, but she fell through the cracks and it was just shocking because, you know, she has a couple lines and it's so prominent. Yeah. And if you have lines, then you're not an extra. And she has, she has at least two lines. But nobody knows who she is. And there's no like, there's no SAG stuff that goes back that far. We've looked everywhere. We've so and uh, might be in the studio notes, but we can't get a hold of those. So I mean, it, it's not like today where it's basically any anybody with a speaking part gets right. credit. You know, and not officially, no. Right. But we do know. I think we know everyone else with a speaking part. We do. We have. We do know who they are. Yeah. And uh, I- yeah, and as I've mentioned so many times before, she really stands out because she's the only person in the scene that really seems perturbed right, by uh, right. all the commotion going on around them. You know, all the other people coming in are just going about their business, making up the room or whatever, but she's, she's the one who really seems put off by all this, you know, rolling her eyes and giving people nasty looks and, you know. Holberg's wow. mistress is my best guess, but but I'd, even so, you know, he would want her named, surely. Yeah. Well, if she was his mistress, he he would have been betraying a shearer for a manicurist. And I should also <laughs> point out that a big mural of Groucho and the manicure shows up in Woody Allen's Stardust Memory. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, well, um, the manicurist is followed by the engineer's <laughs> assistant, Aunt Minnie's mm. niece, the woman who comes to mop up, and the four stewards. Um, anything else to say about this uh, immortal scene? Just love Harpo uh, staying asleep through all of it. <laughs> yeah. That's such a Marx thing. Yeah. That's me. Like, I can take a nap anywhere. I get that from Harpo, I think. Uh, <laughs> now, how do you think they did that? How do you think they did that scene? They, the, the, the all falling out. What, how do you? I just, I looked at it frame by frame. They're just all pushed against the door and they, they come out. Um, Groucho's the only Marx that actually, we actually see. Come out right. But yeah. they kind of, they kind of, yeah. they kind of screwed with the, with the, uh, space. Uh, yeah speed right with the frame yeah. speed and everything yeah, yeah. and it, it, the scene might have gone on a little longer because it does very quickly fade out there might have been more to it there might have been like a right a, right a capra line by groucho that didn't work or, or something but well we know that the director sam wood was notorious for demanding dozens and dozens of retakes of every scene whether they were seemed necessary or not you think they had to do this dozens of times uh, falling out of the room isn't there a, a production shot of everybody crowded in the stateroom and the Marxes and Wood are like cuddled around the script? Yeah, that sounds. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, um, there is another line. Actually, I'm just looking at the at the script here. As Mrs. Claypole opens the door, Groucho and the girl are catapulted out. Groucho landing on Mrs. Claypool and the girl on top of them, and then Groucho has the line: "Now, Mrs. Claypool, I can explain everything." Hmm. That was the. That's what was scripted, uh, possibly on you know on the day they somebody said, wouldn't it be funnier if everybody you know came out like a champagne cork erupting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is a production still of Groucho and the Manicurist laying there in the hallway, and you know Maggie glaring at them. So maybe there was more to the scene at one point, and maybe that's why the Manicurist isn't billed. Uh, maybe she had a bigger part at one point, and then it was cut out, and she was so upset that she. Didn't want to be uh, named 
in the in the credits. Uh, well, that takes us to dinner on the final night of the voyage. Uh, this is where we get the real introduction of the aviators. Yeah. Um, a nice moment where Dumont tells Groucho that the last straw is that he has been associating with Harpo and Chico. Riffraff. Riffraff, exactly. Yeah, she <laughs> describes them as riffraff. Um, and then down in steerage, uh, at least figuratively speaking, Harpo and Chico and Alan Jones are having a much more festive uh, oh, dinner. Right. Oh, it's wonderful. They get that heap of spaghetti, and then ah. each each person gets a bottle of Chianti. <laughs> yeah. How great does that spaghetti look? Wow. <laughs> well, actually, wow. Like even, entire... even, the, even the spaghetti that Gottlieb is eating, you know, you can see <laughs> no, but yeah. I can see the spaghetti, but that is so and then, awesome. And then you see them mopping up their their plates with bread I'm just... with the bread yeah i know it's great i know <laughs> i am there <laughs> and i love and, and uh and and that now that song i love Kosi Kosa. yeah written yeah. but written by one of the greats of all time bronislaw caper who uh yes. caper and who's the is it washington uh no uh, walter german uh, right caper was another one when i was growing brawny we called him i called him uncle brawny he used to come to the house and uh, and he would do and he did all kind of, you know, he was like an escapee, I think, also like from the Nazis and as a lot of them were. And I think he might have been Hungarian, I think. And uh, he, uh, you know, and, yeah, he would come to the house and he would do he would do kind of funny stuff like Chico. Like he would do. I don't know. He, he used to do like funny stuff at the piano. But of course, I mean, look at the two two, you know, I don't know if you know his other songs, but one of one of his is uh, Green Dolphin Street. No, which is oh, basically yeah. one of yeah. the greatest jazz standards ever. Almost, yeah. almost as good as uh, "All God's Children Got Rhythm," and then his other uh, great one is a song called "Invitation." And he also, he also, I believe, he won an Oscar for uh, "High Lily, High Low," mm-hmm. I believe, which he wrote. Uh, and he wrote with Gus Kahn, actually, uh, with I, your I, other grandfather. Yes, my other grandfather, Gus Kahn, Grandpa Gus. And uh, I'm trying to think what they wrote. Did they maybe write? Uh, I think I they worked say, on a day at the races together. They did, but I think they did. They write San Francisco together. No, that may have been. I don't know who. I don't know. But but anyway, Bronislaw Caper was like the greatest guy. And I and again another two more childhood memories. Trying to go to sleep at night in my bedroom and hearing either on the piano in the living room Bronislaw Caper or Oscar Levant. So that that's a good thing to go to sleep with. Not a bad way to fall asleep. Yeah. Yeah, not a bad way. But I love. But Bronislaw Caper, I just I loved him. He was like the nicest. And he was like so cool. Like he used to, like I used to run into him, like when he was really old. And he he still did like fencing. And he was just, he was just like, and he was. I don't think he ever. I don't know. I, I I guess maybe he was married, but his wife died. But he was kind of like this raconteur, and he was like really cool. Like he he was just one of those guys, like you know, like Gilbert Rowland or something. Where you know, no matter how old he got, he was still like totally cool. <laughs> you know, and you'd always see him with young women. I mean, he was really awesome. <laughs> Now, are these supposed to be like all uh, poor immigrants in steerage here? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they could afford to get on, but Chico, Harpo, and Baroni can't? They had to stow away? <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it was all filled. Maybe there were no more tickets. I don't know. And there is a kind of, uh, I mean, it's it's very glorified, isn't it? In, in steerage, you get this giant pile of food, <laughs> you know, including not just all the spaghetti and the bottles of Chianti, but like... Entire cheeses still in the wax. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. 
God. I'm going to go steerage next time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is there anybody who watches this scene now who doesn't think for a moment, ooh, Titanic? Yeah, you know? it is a little bit like this scene, yeah. Everyone's having a very civilized dinner upstairs. Or beside an adventure, yeah. But in, in uh, on the lower decks, it's a, it's a big party. Yeah. Uh, Kosa is a, a, a winning number, too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Although I do have to say, like hearing that song, you wonder why they bothered to delete any Italian references elsewhere in the movie. Right. Not only is yeah. the title yeah, an Italian yeah. phrase, but the whole song has this Italian flavor to it. The word mm-hmm. Italian is in the first two lines. Well, then we get uh, more musical specialties. Uh, yeah. Chico, as mentioned earlier, plays All I Do Is Dream Of You. Um, and Harpo does a little bit at the piano and then plays Alone on the Harp for an mm-hmm. audience of children. Mm-hmm. I love that with Chico playing for the kids. It's kind of nice. Mm. Yeah, it's very charming. Again, it's one of those moments that shouldn't work but does. Yeah, it it's, um, gives us a view of uh, whenever the – um, piano and harp solos are done for an audience that we see in the film. It feels like we're getting a little glimpse of the Marxes as live performers and mm-hmm. seeing them entertain an audience of children. Yeah. I guess for the first time since Harpo's uh, puppet show in Monkey Business uh, is nice. It's it's heartwarming. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both play very well here. These are, for both of them, uh, excellent solos, I think. Um, well, we hear the word stowaways for the first time in the film, spoken by Les Perry pretty soon. Uh, then we get this uh, curious scene with Harpo and Chico in the brig. Let me go on record here saying I am not a big fan of them being caught. They shouldn't be caught, yeah. And it really wasn't necessary. They very easily could have done the scene with them scrambling out uh, uh, through the crowd and ending up in the aviator's cabin. And then they they could have picked up the story right from there. It would have been fine. But for them being caught, eh. Uh, it it's not right. My theory, which I base on no evidence, which is the, always the best thing to base a theory on, um, is that this, uh, unlike uh, most of the comedy scenes which are built up on the tour, mm. I suspect this is a comedy scene that's been built down. Because in the yeah. in the British musical tradition, uh, you'll see this time and time again. This uh, stage uh sketch set in a in a in a room in a ship that is that is rocking back and forth uh which which is done you know done physically underneath the set moving it back and forth uh and that's what we're seeing here because when the water comes in uh you can see it moving so it's not the camera moving it is the set moving um and the, the the guy opening the porthole and the water coming in is a is um a stock British musical routine. So I suspect yeah. that this was yeah. a stage sketch uh, that was yeah. very, very funny on the stage because the mechanics of it are funny. But once once you put it onto film, it, it doesn't really matter anymore because you can do anything on yeah. film. So there are shots, there are stills of Chico, for instance, with very wet hair that obviously have been taken out. So I suspect that this was a, this was a, a, you know, a proper little comic sketch on yeah. tour that has been yeah. reduced to almost nothing on film. Next next time you watch the scene when that water comes in, keep your eye on Alan Jones because he's been asleep and next thing you know, he's up on the top. <laughs> bunk with, he's, laugh, he's laughing big time. Right. I don't know why, but <laughs> he finds it all very amusing. But I, I don't find that stuff up on the rope and uh, you know him being hoisted up on top of the ship. I don't find that good at all. It's really the only co- comedic scene in the film that I don't like. Yeah, I mean, I, lo- I love the way Groucho waves to him. That's lovely. 
when uh, Groucho's looking at the body, he sees Harpo and he's delighted to see him. I think that's lovely. And I love the fact that when he goes, when Harpo goes into the aviator's room, they're all sharing a bed. <laughs> yes. I think far, far more than the butterfly and the, you know, the, the fact that those three men are in perfect parallel lines in one bed. That I like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they all sleep together with under the, the covers. With their beards over the, the top of the cover, yeah. Uh, it is a, a borderline uh, sick, isn't it? That the way Harpo apparently what he does is he he subdues these three aviators, he ties them up, cuts <laughs> off their beards, and then he and Chico and Alan Jones wear the actual beards that they have removed from these <laughs> right. guys. In another movie, this would be very disturbing. <laughs> and I wonder how long it took for the real aviators to get discovered. Because the Marxists make it all the way to City Hall and are making speeches, and no one seems any wiser yet. <laughs> there is a scene in the screenplay that, it, that doesn't make it into the film where they are arrested as the stowaways. Because they have to wear the clothes that the brothers have left in the cabin. Exactly. They have no right. beards and they don't have the uniforms, so yeah. they get arrested as the stowaways. Yeah, and and that sort of fits and explains why Chico and Harpo are wearing you know different clothes in the room with uh, uh, Groucho eating breakfast. And there's also a payoff in the screenplay in the the lost final scene uh, where Harpo uh, cuts off Gottlieb's beard and then Chico uh, glues it to Harpo's chin. (laughs) Wow, that's interesting. That would have put a button on the uh, aviator beard stuff. Uh, I guess the next big thing to discuss here is the the scene with the mayor and the radio audience. Uh, mm-hmm. Chico's uh, speech here about their trip across the ocean, mm-hmm. which has been identified, uh, including by you, Matthew, as Chico's last brilliant comic flight. The last time he's yeah. ever funny on his own. Uh-huh. Yeah. What's interesting about this is that he's being just as ridiculous as he has been in the past but we have an entire backstory as to why he's doing this mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. we, we don't have a backstory as to why he's giving trentino double talk about shadowing firefly maybe there is a whole backstory about why he couldn't shadow him and he, and he had to make something up but we don't get that yeah i don't know whether it helps or it hurts but it it is interesting how it plays differently at mgm than it did at paramount but thank god for Governor Riskin because we get a camera yeah. that is fixed on his face uh, and I'm, yeah. I'm not even i'm not even fond of groucho's interjections you know there's somebody here who i see a man with a rope you know it's it's okay but i <laughs> i i just mm-hmm. love seeing that that the, the chico's head filling the frame uh, mm-hmm. and being funny it's the last time it happens you know, the this, this scene in, uh, I think it's at the circus where they're, where they're having the dinner party and he keeps saying, let's have another cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, where he's, I mean, it's obviously they got, I think they got the idea for that because it kind of apes the, the beard thing, you know, where, they, where they're trying to, you know, they're playing, you know, they're playing for time. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's like, okay, yeah, let's yeah. go now. I need another, you know, and they do it. So it's, and actually the one in, uh, the one in at the circus is great. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like it's watered down and it's terrible. It's actually in its own way, really, really funny, but it, it's very much in that same thing of the stalling and, yeah. and, and then eventually just the whole thing falling apart. But, you know, <laughs> I never entered the mayor's mind to call Alan Jones up to the microphone. If Harper, if Harper wasn't talking. Yeah. yeah. He would be the guy to ask, wouldn't he? <laughs> um, Harpo drinking water always seems to me, although it's fine, like this could have, 
become a showpiece for Harpo the same way it has been for Chico. But Harpo has this problem where he's not allowed to be magical. So mm. all he has are the tools right in front of him, which yeah. is a pitcher of water and a glass. So he does his best with this stuff. But it has this kind of endlessness to it that reminds me of the knife dropping routine. Mm. Um, but mm. that is based on this impossible magical premise. Mm. He has way more up that sleeve than it seems he should. Um, and mm. I feel like he's he's doing his best with what he has here. But... It's just drinking glasses of water. They don't know how to get out of it, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a trick glass. Have we all spotted that? That uh, you can see if you look at the the close shots of it, you can see that the inside of the glass is much more narrow than the outside. So he's not. <laughs> he, so he is drinking. He is genuinely drinking it, but he's not drinking anything like as much as he appears to be. Yeah. Uh, and then when they speak seemingly in another language uh, later in the scene, if you play that backwards, they are clearly saying, Paul is dead. Okay. <laughs> and I expect Bob will be able to uh, to drop in here the, the, the dialogue played the other way, yes? No, I think I'm, I'm going to put us talking backwards. And leave <laughs> hey, I think these fellas are phonies. What's that you say? You heard me. Did you hear what he said? He said you're fords and impostors, and that you absolutely don't belong here at all. He said that about us, so I would never have heard that. Well, that's ridiculous. That's an insult. Absolutely. Like you hear what they say? They say they've never been so insulted in their life, and they absolutely refuse to stay here. No, no, please. He didn't mean it. Tell them he didn't mean it. He says he didn't mean it. He wants you to know if you'll stay here. I don't care what you say. We're going to get out of here. I would stay for a thing like this. Um, and then, and then, a, perhaps a reference to duck soup. Groucho gets to say, "Of course, you know this means war." At the end of the scene, yeah. Um, so when they all scramble out of there, Groucho's basically left to go on his own, head home. He's not in any trouble. Yeah, seems like <laughs> it's true. I guess so because the next scene takes place in what I always read as a hotel room because of all yeah. the Marx Brothers stuff taking place in yeah. hotels. But no, apparently this is. Otis B. Driftwood's New York apartment. Mm. Yeah, I was wondering that myself. And then I, I thought, well, later on, because the, the, the other guys are out on the fire escape, Baroni ends up in Rosa's. Is that in the same building? Or is that just, I don't know what's going on there. You know, Maybe the opera company rented a building yeah. for everyone. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's it's opera housing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> New York opera okay. housing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, this breakfast scene, um, it's really two scenes in one. There's the scene with the brothers eating breakfast, and then we get right. the adjoining rooms bit with, yeah. uh, with Henderson, plainclothesman. Yeah. Uh, in the breakfast scene, uh, the first thing I want to mention is the ad libs, um, which they may well have been prepared lines, but they have an off the cuff quality. First, Groucho's very unconvincing, uh, lines about how his breakfast is going. You know, I've been looking forward yep. to this all morning. This, this is, is how it turned out. Yeah. <laughs> this is how it turned out. Very unusual for him to underplay a line, but that's beautifully underplayed, <laughs> isn't it? Um, yeah. But then, but then, having having established that that he's that he's you know not not enjoying what Harpo's doing, suddenly when Harpo brings out the rubber glove, both he and Chico are, are back on board, and they're, and they're uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll have some of that, you know. And they went. Yeah. <laughs> that's the other. Ad libish line that I love. It's Chico when Harpo's doing the glove and he's pantomiming putting milk in their coffee, and Chico says, "I'll take a little of that anyway." <laughs> <laughs> also, very underplayed, and it doesn't feel like a written line. <laughs> yeah, we should note here, as I mentioned earlier, they're all wearing different clothes now. Um, Harpo has a different jacket on. This one has a dark collar. 
I, I, maybe it's the same top hat. I don't know. Chico obviously has a different hat now. Has that kind of trilby hat, doesn't he? Yeah. 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 Which continues into the park bench scene. Yeah, because Chico's uh, tie is still cut there. So uh-huh. continuity, they were really on top of things. Very good. <laughs> yes. Park bench scene, yes. Uh, and Groucho does a little singing here, too, that I, I haven't been able to place. It vaguely sounds like my Bonnie lies over the ocean, but I don't think it is. Uh, Henderson comes in and, like Alky Briggs before him, identifies Groucho <laughs> as a wise guy. Uh, what do we think of this version of the adjoining rooms scene? I like this. I like. I think this is Sam Wood's best moment in the film. Mm-hmm. He does a really good job with this. Yeah, it's good. You know, I know you guys are big fans of the similar scene in Coconuts, but I, I like this a lot better. It, well, it's as good, I think. You know, it's obviously it's a reprise. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a you know a very obvious reprise. Uh, but it, yeah, mm. it's fabulously done. Um, the thing that makes me laugh the most, though, is when uh, Groucho calls him Colonel. <laughs> I didn't even catch that. Yeah, he calls him Colonel. Just because uh, he he can't think of uh, inspector or officer or whatever mm. he might call him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you know, it's always it's always either Hennessy or Henderson, isn't it? Every yeah. cop in these films is yeah. like Henderson. But yeah, I I don't know the exact line, but yeah, he says something rather colonel. <laughs> My favorite line is when uh, Henderson says, "You'll be alone when I throw you in jail." And Crouch says, "Isn't there a song yes. like that? There's a song like that." <laughs> and there should be. You should write it. Though. <laughs> That's a good idea. You'll be alone when I throw you in jail. Yes. Um, yeah, I think this is an excellent scene, and. Um, on my recent reviewing, this is the one that uh, got me genuinely laughing after dozens and dozens of viewings. I, I really laughed at it. Um, and it ends uh, with, yes, I, what I think is the film's first cookie in, in, uh, when they disguise themselves yeah. in order yeah. to be discovered. Yeah, right. Um, there's a little Ricardo and Rosa stuff, a little Rodolfo and Rosa stuff, a little bit of a fight. Well, yeah, about that, about this fight. So, yeah, Vesperi comes in. You know, he's sitting on Rosa. Baroni shows up, and Vesperi very politely, I apologize, I will leave. Mm. But Baroni picks a fight with him and punches him anyhow. Baroni, well, now I understand. You did not tell me you had a previous engagement. Well, now you know it. And I apologize. And now, permit me to withdraw. In a boudoir, two are company, three are crowd. Just what do you mean by that? Please, Ricardo. Surely I have made my meaning clear. <gasps> Ricardo! <laughs> I mean, he's just he's just spoiling for a fight, isn't he? He could have said anything. Yeah. He could have said, you know... Well, I think there's a little bit, he... you know, it's, you know, they really just want to hit you over the head with how, how far they've all fallen, you know, to get to the, the you know, <laughs> you know, the low point when they're, you know, when, when they're at the park bench. Yeah, it just would have been so easy for Laspari to say or do something that uh, warrants him getting punched, but he really oh. doesn't. On our way to the park bench, we have this double scene with Groucho arriving at the opera house and being received as a hero. Yeah, they um, love him, don't they? They they love him. <laughs> I was young myself once, and they all. I was young myself once. They all yeah, I love smile, that. and they, they think he's great. <laughs> 
But then his name is being removed from his office door. So he storms into Gottlieb's office where he discovers Mm -hmm. Mrs. Claypool and others um, for the crime of associating with Harpo and Chico. uh, (laughs) She is dispensing with his services, which he notes she has not yet had. To be honest, he totally deserves it. I don't understand why he wasn't fired the moment he signed uh, Baroni instead of Lespari. You know, he really hasn't <laughs> done anything for Mrs. Claypool. Why is he still even there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Groucho yeah. reminds me here a little bit of Max Bialystok and the producers. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it was true, wasn't it, that in an early version of A Night at the Opera, a producers-like plot was proposed, yes. the idea of deliberately making a flop in order to fraud your uh, investors. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a Bialystok quality to Groucho here. Moth-eaten uh, marginal showbiz figure. With, with a cardboard belt. <laughs> with a cardboard belt. Look at me, I'm wearing a cardboard belt. <laughs> and then, uh, infamously, Groucho or his stunt double, is kicked down the stairs. An indignity like nothing we've seen yet. (laughs) Um, All right. How about the park bench scene? Um, What are our thoughts? Uh, Well, it's funny. This is something I always, uh, I always remember something that my dad said to me. We, I don't know, we were talking about screenwriting one day or something. And, you know, in screenwriting, there's that term about the all is lost moment, you know, which is always at the end of act two where everything looks terrible and you're not going to recover. So, so my dad and I were talking about that and it was, and I remember him saying, he goes, Oh, you mean like the park bench scene and then I did the opera. And I said, yeah, you know what? That scene is the, is the great all is lost moment. It's, it really is so perfect. You know? Yeah, that's right. I mean, but it really, I, but I love that my dad, like that was his reference that he, you know, he didn't go like, Oh, you mean the scene in the bridge on the river choir where it looks like, you know, the (laughs) dynamite's not going to detonate, not that one. It, It was, and it was, but it was kind of, it was nice. You put it in kind of a personal thing. And, and I've always, and I've used that when I, when I've talked about, uh, you know, that, that moment, cause it, it is, it's, it's the perfect yeah. all is lost moment in a night at the opera and, and real compact, you know, and they're yeah. all, and, and it's, and it's the other thing that's great about the, the all is lost moment in that, in a night at the opera is, you know, it's very, it's physical. So it's not just, you know, that they've lost everything, blah, 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 but it's completely physical that they're yeah. sitting on a park bench, you know, and it's like they're all scrunched together and it, it's, it's kind of a perfect kind of thing. Well, I guess, I guess, I guess Kaufman and Riskin had, had, had read, you know, like uh, screenwriting 101 or something. Right? <laughs> so that's how they knew. And actually the result of the scene is that Rosa has been fired as well. So it actually gets worse. Yeah. So it's not right. like, so they actually gets yeah. lower before the that's, scene ends. Yeah. What I like yeah. about it is that the Marx brothers are only there through choice. Um, the only the mm. only person who's actually uh, up shit creek here is is um, Ricardo. You know, Groucho obviously can drift off to some other spurious situation. Right. Chico's mm. fine. Harpo's fine. The only reason that they're on their uppers as well is because they want to help Ricardo because he's a nice guy. So it it's not you know no no no. Um, unpleasant effort has been made to to actually make the situation of the Marx Brothers themselves difficult. Mm. They're just there. They're just along for the ride. I've never seen in any other Marx Brothers movie a all-is-lost moment that's as pronounced as mm-hmm. the one in The Night at the Opera. Yeah. And again, yeah. that's Thalberg. I bet you, I mean, that's, you know, Thalberg made those kind of movies, you know, and, they, and mm. basically every movie, you know, good or bad, 
it, you know, it's supposed to have that moment. And, you, you know, you go like, what's the all is lost? Mo- what is the all is lost moment in duck soup? I don't know. Is there really one? <laughs> there really isn't, you know, and, and again, because they don't really follow the traditional, uh, you know, screenplay, yeah. you know, formula, not that you have to do that and be a hack, but it's just this one. It, it really, and I, I mean, it's, it, it's the most one that stands out the most of it to me of any Marx Brothers movie. It's been earned. Yeah. And, it, and, yeah. It's, and, and yeah. yeah. But just imagine if yeah. Thalberg had handed that, that instruction to an MGM staff writer. You know, can you imagine mm. what they would have come up with? Some horrible, glutinous, sentimental scene. Mm. But luckily, he's, hand, yeah. he's handed that instruction to Kaufman and Riskant. Right. So, so it, but, he it did, but, he did, but he did hand the instruction. Yeah. I like uh, Chico's line, uh, wherever you are, you'll find us. It's um, one of those lines. It, maybe it can't be fully defended as Marx Brothers material, but it seems to be one of those moments that works on a few different levels and um, has some connection to the way we feel about the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. Right. And now, now we get into, now we're into act. Now we go to act three, right? Okay. I have a couple of issues with the scene. Um, they're breaking the Gottlieb's office. You know, they're drinking his alcohol. They're sitting there very defiantly. Uh, you're thinking, oh, they got a plan. They got something up their sleeves. They got the goods on them or something. But really, they got nothing. All they're doing is offering to give themselves up. I don't really see that as much of a plan. I mean, maybe what they're thinking is we have in our pockets the sheet music for Take Me Out to the Ball Game. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Literally in their back pockets. Yeah. yeah. And when you think about it, all they really want is to get Rosa back into the show, which is where they were when the park bench scene started. It's trying to go back like five minutes. So I don't know about the scene. Yeah, it, this scene always feels like it, it's reminiscent of the perhaps apocryphal publicity tales of yeah. all the things they did in Thalberg's office mm-hmm. in the run-up to this film. And I think one of the reasons those stories, whatever their validity, seem so convincing is because in a way we feel like we saw them do that mm-hmm. because they do in- invade Gottlieb's office and they're smoking and drinking and making themselves mm-hmm. comfortable. Mm-hmm. And they're naked. <laughs> Maybe on the road tour. <laughs> Uh, Otis B. Driftwood, compared with uh, earlier Groucho creations, uh, does not have a lot of long speeches. Uh, it's one of the classic Groucho things we don't really get much of in this movie. Uh, mm. Until now, he does get to give Gottlieb's speech before the opera. Yeah. Um, and it has a couple of great moments in it. The let joy be unconfined, uh, that is an oft-quoted <laughs> uh, memorable Groucho bit, uh, necking in the parlor. And he says, play, Don. I thought as a child that Groucho and Jack Benny were both making a reference that I didn't get. But actually, Groucho is making a Jack Benny reference. Yes. Mm. And one of my favorite jokes, the uh, spaghetti and bicarbonate of soda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great joke. Yeah, and, and beautifully delivered. Um, as in the film of Animal Crackers, you get the feeling here Groucho is just enjoying himself. He just glides through the scene, depositing yeah. brilliant gags. Um, he's really <laughs> right on point here. You know, I wonder if, if uh, how much of, you know, because there's the famous line about, you know, Kaufman saying, you know, quiet, I think I just heard one of my lines. So yeah. I, I wonder if there was much of that going on in, in this thing, because, because they, again, they were doing the tour. So they had a chance to really screw with it. So I wonder, you know, how much was that? I mean, I guess you don't, I don't know. 
If I had to guess, I would suspect that they did on the tour. They probably yeah. took many liberties and tried everything that, that popped into their heads. And then right. on the set, they were probably more professional and watching the budget and watching the clock and right. all those things. It was very important to them that this film come out well. And I think the stakes must have felt higher to them here than on previous pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that was kind of one of the things that Will and I, you know, tried to try to do in our script about, you know, it really, I mean, they really did kind of see it as their last, I, I mean, and I know this from talking to Groucho about it. I mean, they really did, you know, they kind of knew that this was going to be the end. If this, if this didn't work, they really just, that was going to be it. So it worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly did. And it actually brought them further than they had gone before in terms of being, yeah you know, Hollywood legends, beloved members of the movie community in the way yeah. that they had been of the Broadway community years earlier. So this climactic scene uh, at the opera, um, here we are. Um, mm. a, a lot happens here, and it is definitely a delirious conclusion, mm. such as was rarely provided for them in previous outings. And, and later ones, yeah. And, and who stole it for a 1980s comedy? Anything uh, you, are you talking about brain donors? No, no, not brain donors. Is brain donors is that a Zucker movie? Mm -hmm. Is that yeah. a Zucker Brothers movie? Oh. Yeah. No, not yeah. brain donors. So fine, the Andrew Bergman movie with the whole thing ends at the opera. Have you guys uh, ever seen that? No. Ryan O'Neill movie? Yes, but I vaguely recollect it. Yeah. Well, it's a movie. It's it's basically about it's called So Fine, and it's about it's it's you know it's Andrew Bergman who uh, I think he had something to do with Blazing Saddles, and you know he he directed mm -hmm. directed the 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 Matthew Broderick, I believe Brando that you know the freshman, the, yeah. And it's basically it's a, Ryan O'Neill plays a guy that uh, he uh, he owns a, like a jeans company that's that's uh, failing, and then. Um, I don't know, something happens. It's, it's just a crazy comedy, but the whole end basically ends in an opera thing with the, with the you know, gangsters and all that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I think this climax is borrowed for a couple of Danny Kaye movies too. Both uh, Wonder Man and uh, Knock on Wood have conclusions like this. One is an opera, the other is a ballet, but similarly uh, trying to evade the law while winding up on stage in the middle of a high culture performance. There are also traces of this as well in a couple of um, British films. Will Hayes, My Learned Friend, uh, has a scene uh, rather like this, 1948. Uh, but also uh, the Morecambe and Wise film from 1965, The Intelligence Men, ends mm. with a sequence that is obviously very indebted to this. Um, it, uh, my feeling, this is, this is the, uh, the, the MGM idea that you need a big finale, a big stunt finale. This is the one that really works. It's because it's by far mm -hmm. the best integrated one. Uh, it's it's yeah. the only one, really, that, that, that works on every intended level. It's, yeah. it's absolutely... Uh, it absolutely follows from what has gone before. Uh, it doesn't yeah. feel kind of grafted on in the way that the circus one does or the big store one does. Uh, but Definitely. it's but it's also extremely funny. It's uh, mm -hmm. probably their best their best physical climax. Yeah, I'll go along with that. I think it's great. Also, I do have one little nitpick. Um, you know, we spent this whole film establishing that the Marxes uh, are real people with real emotions and real concerns. You know, and out of nowhere, Harpo all of a sudden has this magical ability to uh, run up the curtain. Yes. 
He certainly yeah. didn't have magical yeah. abilities when he was getting beaten up. Yeah. Or, you know, all these other indignities that have been thrown upon him and the, his brothers. Uh, and now all of a sudden he can run up the curtains. I, I, I'm not sure this moment works for me. It, it, I wish he could have, uh, gotten out of this, uh, through a little more invention rather than, uh, a magical ability he didn't have previously. It's a strange moment in a movie that doesn't normally let him do things like that. Yeah, it's like Superman or something. It's- yeah. I think my favorite moment is when Chico and company, they all, they fall from the fly space at the end. They come crashing down to the ground and Chico stands up and says, is this the opera house? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, what, what other tidbit I can remember back from my early days. I had a girl, I had a, when I was in college, I had a girlfriend and my mother took one look at her and she said, my God, she looks like the gypsy from a night at the opera. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, I didn't. I did not stay with this woman very long. <laughs> and then my mother, and then because isn't there? Doesn't she go like bugger, 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 or something? Doesn't she? Uh, do Groucho that? does. Groucho does. Okay, that. so 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 there's. I I brought this girl over to you know like to meet my parent, like they were having a dinner party, and I, I she came over and I introduced, and then I was out, and I was in the kitchen, and my mom goes, yeah, she looks. She goes, what? She looks like the the gypsy from a night at the opera. And then, like for the next hour, my every time my mother saw me, like walk through the, she'd go bugga bugga bugga. Yeah. <laughs> I did not marry that woman. <laughs> uh, the camera does linger on that woman. Uh, she really did. And that woman actually turned out to be gay. So it, it actually turned out that it was probably better that we did not stay together. <laughs> but I, but I didn't. It wasn't because of me that she that she. I had one of those. That's what they all say. I know. <laughs> I do love when the scenery is changing behind. behind oh, them. That's, so, that's so well that is, done. Yeah. And, and that's great. what they rip off in So Fine. The whole thing is like that with the people coming, like going down the thing and all, you know, it, it just mm-hmm. a complete, a complete rip. But yeah, that, that scene is like the greatest. It's so mm-hmm. good. Gottlieb almost has a stroke. He's a battleship in Il Travator. <laughs> <laughs> His yeah, delicate well, system can't yeah. even handle the thought of it. Yeah, well, I mean, all the other can, stuff that's can, going on. And you can see what, how, why the movie was such a hit with everybody, because it literally, it just had something for everybody. It, it really did. I mean, it had the romance. It had, like, a great comedy. It had great, like, these big set pieces. I mean, it just, it's perfect. I mean, that's why I think it's the best one, but... What do I know? There is something to be said for structure. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong yes. with, with the fact that it does, you know, have three acts and it builds to it. You know, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it, no. it, it does it really well. I think for people who are, you know, movie fans, and I'm using uh, air quotes here, A Night at the Opera is going to be the favorite. It's more a traditional great movie than the, uh, you know, laugh fests of duck soup and animal crackers and so forth. So... It's not surprising that a lot of people do put this up top. Yeah, it's real. It's mm-hmm. real. I wonder what the turn is. You know, the other big thing they talk in screenwriting is there's always there's a, a a turning point in the middle of Act Two, so it basically comes in the middle of the movie. I wonder what that would be. I've never really analyzed it. it might be like around the um, Henderson stuff. Uh, no, I think that's too late. Too late, maybe. Well, yeah. maybe I don't know. Is it something maybe more on the boat or something? Yeah, or the Chico's aviator speech. Maybe that's a. Which is, I don't know. Who cares? And it doesn't really matter. We don't need to do pedantic screenwriting stuff. It's fine. Well, one thing, this is slightly pedantic, but one thing I, I always notice about the climactic scene is one thing it is not, or it doesn't seem to be, is an attack on the pretensions of the world of opera, which is, it's always talked about that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, the it really isn't. The opera is uh, is kind of the hero of this story, and the Marx Brothers characters 
love the opera um, as as long as the people they like are performing in it. Um, and their attack on the evening um, ends as soon as uh, Alan Jones and Kitty Carlisle step on stage. It's mm-hmm. also interesting how the audience in the movie just instantly goes from having a wonderful time to being outraged by what's happening to having a wonderful time again to the point where they boo Les Barry when he yeah. reappears. Yeah. They- yeah. And this is something that gets that something that gets lost in the kind of paranoia about Italy in the film, because it's it's one of the one of the sort of saddest ironies is that it obviously in it in Italy opera is not thought of as remotely highbrow. Right. It's it's mm. very very much the steerage tradition, and the film celebrates that. Uh, and mm. I think I say in my book that the problem. The reason why uh, Gottlieb is a is a buffoon is not because he likes opera. It's because he doesn't like <laughs> opera. It's because opera to him is a means to an end. Um, and, right. and and once once Laspari is off the stage and Ricardo is on it, uh, the film and the Marx Brothers and the audience love it. Yeah, it's quite true. And and the operas that are highlighted in the film are uh, Pagliacci, is, that's the opera that we see in, in the Italy sequences in the beginning uh, that Laspari is appearing in. And Travatore, you know, these are the most popular, accessible operas yeah. in the whole repertoire. It's really, really hitting that wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... It's late over on the other side of the Atlantic. You know, I thought this thing was going to end a little earlier. I'm starving. <laughs> I can't believe you guys didn't cater this thing. Come on. <laughs> I think we are coming in for a landing, though. Okay, that's well, uh, that's the end of the film. Are we are we wrapping up now? Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's just plug a few things before okay, we close yeah, let's up. Plug a few I want to I want to plug your book, Andy. Yeah, it's on uh, Amazon, Kindle. You know, paperback, whatever. Royalties, Andy Marks, the story of the Marxes and the Cons. Put into one lovely uh, Romana Clef novel. Uh, yeah, this I I have to confess I have not yet cracked this open. I've, oh, I've owned this book for a few weeks. It's a mighty um, big crack. I also must. <laughs> this book is a mighty big crack. I'm really looking forward to digging into it. I think you'll holidays. dig it. I mean, if you're a fan of you know early Hollywood and all that, I think you'll like it. It's a it's a great love story, and it, I, again, I based it on you know all the tales that I heard from Groucho and Grace and. You know, just about their wild times. You know, because they all knew each other. Grace Khan yeah. and Gus and, you know, mm-hmm. and that is that. And so please, folks at home, pick up uh, Royalties by Andy Marks. Um, maybe yeah. a, f- a future podcast episode, we will uh, oh, yeah. get into it a little more. Uh, yeah. um, and uh, Matthew, you've got some new books to plug as well. I have one new book. Yeah, I have a book about the Bela Lugosi Dracula film, if anybody's a fan of Dracula. Um, I've written a book called Dracula AD 1931, which has just been published by Hemlock Books in Britain. It's actually the first book Mm. I've ever written that's been published in Britain. All my other books Mm. have been American. Uh, Well, congrats. That's great. But this is a genuine British book, but you you can get it in America if you're interested. Uh, it's a kind of a meditation on the subject of Lugosi's Dracula. There's lots of fun things in it, and a few a few uh, brand new things. We've renamed the actress who plays the Flower Girl. It's not Anita Harder. If you're a Dracula fan, it's not Anita Harder. It's Bunny Beatty. Uh, so that's available now. And there's a, another book on Doctor Crippen coming out in April. If you're a fan of true crime. Uh, mm. we've, uh, we've 
have got some very interesting new things on Dr. Crippen. So that book's coming out in April, but Dracula AD 1931 is out now from Hemlock. Mm. Please, mm. please buy it or else I'll never be published by Hemlock ever again. <laughs> and for my part, I would like to encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to check out on YouTube Home Again, the Marx Brothers in New York City, the piece I did for the Fredonia Festival last month, which features memorable appearances by all three of my uh, fellow podcasters today, Andy Marks in a musical performance that has been much loved and commented on, yeah, and some beautiful voiceover work from uh, Matthew and Bob. And on December 3rd, the streaming premiere of uh, Quarantigone, the ancient yeah. Greek tragedy that my wife and collaborator Amanda Sisk and I have put together, uh, will be available for free on YouTube also. Oh, that's so can, cool. I, can I plug something? Please. I've been working on this uh, Marx Brothers podcast for the last couple of years. I'd like you to all check out. It's called the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. We have uh, an upcoming ep episode with Andy Marx. I think you will all love. So please check that out. Thank wow, you. that doesn't sound right. Yeah, not, 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 okay. not really to my taste. Yeah, I think I'll skip okay. that one. Yeah. Okay. But whatever you're doing, Bob, I'm I'm, I'm with you. I mean, we I'm love it. Of... Thank you, Bob. You guys are awesome. I we I'd love to do this again sometime. This would be really cool. Count on it. We would love to have you back. And uh, okay, yeah, we could do uh, we could do a lot more with you, Andy, and uh, look forward to it. Sounds... That's also what she said. But uh, whatever. <laughs> okay, Andy. At the end of every episode, we have uh, our guest uh, introduce the final song. So why don't you go ahead and do that right now? Okay. <laughs> what is it? My <laughs> oh, God, I, you know, I, I have my ukulele. I could have, I could have sung us out, but. Uh, oh, uh, go on, go and get it. Should I? Yes. Well, let's, let's, let's lead into this. Okay. So, Noah, why don't you like end the show and throw it to him? All right. Well, that brings us down to the end of another one. But before we go, our concluding song is particularly special. It'll be played for you live on the ukulele by Mr. Andy Marks himself. Andy? Play on. Hold on. It had to be you. It had to be you. Written by my other grandfather. I wandered around and finally found the somebody who could make me be true, could make me be blue, and even be glad just to be sad, thinking of you, of oh, some others I've seen. Might never be mean, don't be so mean, mama. Or ever be cross, or ever be boss, but they wouldn't do for nobody else. Gave me a thrill with all your faults, I love you still. It had to be you, a wonderful you, it had to be you. Had to be you. Gus Khan, 1924, with Isham Jones. Don't throw that ukulele in the water. <laughs> <laughs> 
The Marx Brothers Council Podcast is hosted by Matthew Codium, Noah Diamond, and Bob Gassell, and is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by leaving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. Matthew Conium's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho. The solo career of Groucho Marx are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of Alsatias, The Lost Marx Brothers Musical, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. Please visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. This is Heidi Gassell. We'll see you next time. I guess they have some giant uh, worldwide international uh, harp competition in Israel. And I guess they invited uh, Susan to go and be a judge for this thing. And she said, okay, well, also, would you, I'm, if you don't mind, I'd love to donate uh, two of you know, Harpo's harps. So she donates the harps, and she flies to Israel for the competition with the harps you know, on the plane. And they go, well, we're sorry, but you owe uh, $12,000 in customs fees if you want it. And apparently, she refused to pay. This is Susan. She refused to pay, and I think she said, I'm leaving I'm not going to do this. And apparently the only time in the history of Israel, they reversed uh, the customs fees and they, they didn't, and she didn't have to pay the, the 12,000. And so that's why they're there. Hmm. So wow. that was kind of a thrill to see them. And I, and believe it, it's funny, actually, I, I sent all this to Scott Alexander when I was in Israel, you know, when I did this. And then I guess he went with his family because he sent me, you know, like six months later, he went and then he, and he had like the same pictures. So. Yeah. He probably posted his up there, but go ahead and post mine. Mine are better. And I'm, and I'm better looking than Scott yeah. and taller. Yeah. So, of course, everybody's taller than Scott, but that's okay. <laughs> right. but, we love, but we love Scott. I'm kidding. We love Scott. All we right. love you, Scott. We really do. We do. Scott, yeah. I'm just joking. And you can take a joke. You're one of the, one of the premier comedy writers. Never trust a man who only ever wears shorts. That's my favorite. My God, how do you guys know that? <laughs> I can't believe. Yes, but you know he does make an exception. <laughs> you know what that's for? No, what's for? He will he will wear long pants if he has a meeting at somebody's office. Like if he's meeting, if he's meet, <laughs> if, he, if he has a meeting, like a business meeting at a Starbucks, he'll still wear shorts. But if he has to go to like the lot and meet the guy, then he will wear <laughs> long pants. I love Scott. I love both of them. Scott and Larry. Well, Scott must be enjoying that aspect of this age of Zoom meetings, huh? He never has to wear long pants. I know, right? I know. It's, <laughs> he never probably know. doesn't wear any pants. 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 Any pants.